Khashoggi entered the consulate on October 2nd. Two weeks later, I think it was the 16th, Saudi Arabia finally admitted that he had, in fact, died inside that consulate. And I'm reading this story as I think many in the world were, began following this story in those two weeks. And, you know, each day it was another shocking allegation and that he had been dismembered and that the body was nowhere to be found and that they won't let him in the consulate. And following that story in those two weeks, in my mind, I was going, here was this story of a journalist. And not only that, he's a Washington Post journalist. Oh, and he's fighting for free speech and he's advocating for human rights and he disagrees with his authoritarian government. And he's at essentially a war words with the crown prince and now he's been murdered. Maybe this is the next film I wanna make. Human rights and freedom of speech isn't just in danger and being suppressed in places like Saudi Arabia. It's here in the United States. That's Brian Fogle, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. So a couple of years ago, I hosted cyclist and filmmaker Brian Fogel on the show to talk about Icarus, his extraordinary expose of Russia's elaborate state-sponsored Olympic doping program. And that's a film that would land him an Oscar for best documentary in 2017. Well, Brian is back He's got an incendiary follow-up. It's called The Dissident. And it's this candid portrait of Saudi Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, and the rather bone-chilling events surrounding his murder that plays as a film more like an international thriller than a documentary. It's definitely another Oscar contending mandatory must watch. And this conversation is going to rock you. But first. Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com/slash livingproof. Okay, Brian Fogel. Of course. This conversation is organized around his latest work, The Dissident, 
which premiered in limited theaters on December 25 and is available VOD on most streaming platforms beginning January 8th, and which I promise you is going to rock your world. Behind the story of Jamal Khashoggi himself and this trajectory that he goes on from reformist journalist to ultimately dissident, this is also a discussion about free speech and the role of social media in both promoting and squelching it. It's about the growing surveillance state, tech intrusions on privacy, cyber warfare, Mohammed bin Salman's consolidation of power in Saudi Arabia, and the complexity of international relations with the kingdom. It's also about how that real politique trickles down to Hollywood and how the dissident, despite being the talk of the town at last year's Sundance, proved almost too fraught for just about every film distribution company and very nearly never saw the light of day. I think it's fair to say that Brian is one of the most important documentary filmmakers of our time. Please check out our first conversation, episode 328, if you missed it. And it was an honor to once again, sit down with him. And I suspect this conversation is gonna leave you with more than a few important things to ponder. So here we go. This is me and Brian Fogel. It's been a couple of years. The last time I saw you was on the bike. It's good to be back in the same room with you, man. And a lot has happened in the last couple of years in your life. It's been a crazy trajectory for you. Yeah, it's been um, it's been an interesting uh, few years. That's mm. that's for sure. What was it like when you won the Oscar and you're up on that stage? I mean, that has to be one of the most surreal experiences you can imagine. Um, it was March of uh, 2018, mm-hmm. and it was surreal and, and what was interesting is leading leading up to that, the the months up to it, um, uh, Icarus released on Netflix in August of 2017. And um, the Academy Awards was, you know, eight months later mm-hmm. uh, or seven months later. And Netflix had, you know, had put a lot of energy behind essentially this award campaign. And I had never went through anything like this before. And so, it was seven months of every day of my life. You're waking up and here's your schedule for the day. Right. Here's your press. Here's where you're going. Here's your screenings. Here's where you're going. You know, and it, it was intense. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the lead up into that was months and months of this, you know, kind of campaign. But from the time we get nominated to actually going to the Academy Awards and there I'm there sitting there. I mean, it felt like there was a, an elephant on me. Like I wasn't at that point having fun because it, uh-huh. it just, it was amazing. And at the same time, the pressure, because there was just, there was so much feeling for me at stake. And, um, and Netflix and my partners and everything had put so much into it. And so we were all like there kind of like on pins and needles. Mm-hmm. And luckily they called uh, the award for best documentary. I think it was like the third or fourth award of yeah, the night. Yeah, it was early in the night. Which was really, really good because like, you know, you're, you're sitting there and, you know, they called Icarus. And I just remember like uh, at, at that moment, 
I, I essentially had left my body. I mean, it was just, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, you, you're walking up on the stage there and, you know, there's, you know, this person, that person, everybody in the entertainment. That front world. row just looking up at you. you. You've ever admired and you're sitting there going like, wow, I'm, I'm on stage at the Academy Awards with an Oscar in my hand. And they handed me that Oscar and it's, I don't know how many pounds it's, it's like 12, 13 pounds or 10. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's heavy. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, and uh, and uh, yeah, it was completely surreal. And an actor uh, uh, won the statue. You know, you're led into this labyrinth underneath the Kodak Theater, mm-hmm. and you come out of the labyrinth about an hour later because they walk you through all these like stations of photos and right. and in a booth like what was it like to win the Oscar uh-huh. and all these you know kind of surreal things and you emerge about an hour later and as I kind of emerge out of the cavern about an hour later uh, right where the backstage is um, is uh, I can't remember if it's is it Joel or Ethan Cohn who's married to Francis McDormand I think it's Joel Joel so uh, Joel is there and Francis won the Academy right. Award that night for Best Actress and um, and he goes to me, enjoy this. And he goes, yeah, he's like, he's like, because, you know, the odds are this is never going to happen again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he tells me this, this crazy funny story about Sylvester Stallone that I won't repeat. And I just went, I'm like, this is so surreal. I just won an Academy Award. There's, I really should remember if it's Joel or Ethan Cohn talking to me like they're my favorite filmmakers of all time, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, it was it was quite a night. It's pretty cool. And my parents were there too. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. The campaigning that goes into the Oscar season is bananas. It, There's so uh, much at stake it, for these companies. It is bananas. And uh, what's interesting is in COVID now, you know, uh, it's so radically different. Right, because you can't press the flesh and go to all these lunches and all that kind of and stuff. And all these screenings where, you know, with Icarus, you had, I don't even know, you know, 30, 40 screenings where small screenings and you're meeting people. And and it was wonderful because I, I got to meet so many people, so many people that I looked up to or filmmakers or documentarians or y- you name it. Um, and so COVID has really, really changed mm-hmm. that. But it was it's really intense because you're you're also there's like a playbook. You've got your talking points and you've got your, you know, like the do's and the don'ts and what <laughs> yeah. you're gonna say and what you shouldn't say and and how to answer a question. And everything was so like um it was it was intense. Yeah. It was intense. And uh uh, and the press I was doing, you know, you'd then kind of like, you know, you'd go do an interview. And then after the interview, it was like, okay, that was really good, but, you know, maybe change the next time you answer the question, do this, you know? <laughs> and, uh, well, so I could, you know, thinking was, back to when you did the podcast, you, I mean, you're definitely lighter in your shoes today than you were on that day. There was a, you know, we had just met, so we didn't know each other really, but there was a there was a, a, a little bit more of a seriousness and maybe a sense that you were shouldering that kind of heavy responsibility at the time. Yeah, I, I just, I was, uh, it was interesting. I, I remember going through that so well because um, 
I was enjoying it at the same time I actually was, I was so stressed out. Yeah. Because each one of these events, you do these events, and then it was like, okay, w- w- was that okay? Uh-huh. And then I'd like replay it in my mind and go like, did I, did I answer a question the right way? Or did I say something that was wrong? <laughs> your publicist is gonna I, call you and I, chew yeah. you out for, listen, if yeah. you're going on podcasts though, and you're talking yeah. for a couple hours, you know. It's, um, I mean, the, the entire, lead up to uh, the Oscars and, and just that whole season. I mean, it was so intense. And mm-hmm. we, had, um, we had been nominated for a BAFTA. Um, and so I'd been at the BAFTAs like two weeks before that and, and we didn't win. And so you come out of the BAFTAs and you're feeling you know, like completely defeated. Right. But you've got the Oscar nomination and, and everybody at the time was going, well, don't, don't worry about that or the, you know, uh-huh. the, uh, you, you still got uh, uh, the Oscars. And um, it was an incredible experience, but I can't tell you that I was like having fun during that period. And part of it really had to do with um, what Icarus was about. Mm-hmm. And that here as this whole awards season is going and um, Gregory Rachenkov uh, whistleblower to this day mm-hmm. is living in hiding in protective custody, uh, is um, isolated. And so it was, it, it, what was weighing on me also was that, okay, here I am having these experiences and um, being celebrated. And the guy who. Without him, that without would not have him, been possible. Yeah, this wouldn't have been possible without his evidence, without that story. None of this would be happening is basically living in isolation in an undis- mm-hmm. undisclosed location under security, under the threat of his life. And, you know, uh, here I am on this completely different trajectory now. And, uh, and, that, and that really weighed on me, mm-hmm. uh, still weighs on me. Yeah, I mean, my first question, I mean, we're here to talk about The Dissident, your new, your new film, but we can't get into that without hearing a little bit about how Gregory is doing. Like, are you in communication with him? Like, what's the latest? I know he put this book out recently. He uh, put his book out, which is uh, um, his memoir of you know, his, his life. And actually, I can say this now because um, by the time you hear this, it'll be known. It just won uh, the William Hill Sports Book of the Year, which is a very oh, wow. prestigious prize in the UK. Uh, so he just won the basically British Sports Book of the Year award for the for uh, for the book. Um, and yet, the book still doesn't have a U.S. publisher, which is bizarre. Yeah, I noticed that he self-published it. No, it was published by Penguin oh, Random was... House in the UK. And then we couldn't get a, a U.S. deal for it. Um, I was involved just as no financial stake, nothing, just trying to to help facilitate. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book's pretty amazing, and uh, um, and so that you know came out a couple months ago. Um, but I'm not able to. Um, you know, communicate directly with him. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have his phone number. Mm. I don't know where he lives. Um, I don't want to know where he lives. Yeah. Um, but we've been able to stay in touch through his lawyers. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he's doing okay, but uh, he hasn't seen his family since, uh, since he escaped uh, Russia, uh, which was in November of uh, 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went into protective custody in uh, July of 2016. Uh, so we're, you know, four years in now, four and a half years mm-hmm. in of essentially this guy living in isolation, uh, in protection. And what's interesting is that the story has continued to evolve. He, um, when Icarus released in August 2017, Russia was still going to the Olympics. Five months later, basically because of what that film's impact had been on the world at that point and, and the global distribution that, that Netflix has, uh, the Olympics, the IOC essentially had to do something. So even though at that point the story had been in the press and the media, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's very different. Okay, you see something on CNN or read something in the New York Times versus now you're emotionally connecting to a character and you're seeing this in a film and you're realizing the extent of this fraud and kind of how bad it really was, um, the IOC you know, decides to ban Russia from the Pyeongchang Olympic Games in 2018. And in the decision of the ban, even though the ban was largely ceremonial because Russia was then able to still compete but not under their own flag and the athletes were competing as Olympic athletes mm-hmm. from Russia, um, they cited Icarus in their reason uh, decision. Wow. And so that was, you know, uh, the Olympics, I think, were February 2018. Mm-hmm. And then at the time, there was the, still is, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, had put together this roadmap, which was, okay, here's the three things that Russia needs to do to get reinstated into world sport. And... One of them was that they were supposed to provide the LIMS data, which is the laboratory management system data of everything they had been up to over mm-hmm. the past, like, you know, decade kind of thing. Like, okay, we know you cheated, but you guys got to come clean and you need to provide this data because they had believed that, you know, that what was in this database um, was a ton of other doping violations mm-hmm. and frauds that the urine swapping and the opening the bottles and all the other kind of stuff. And Rachenkov, Gregory, had said, yeah, this is, you know, there are tons and tons of cases in here that, you know, that I entered into the system as negative that were actually mm. positive, right? And here's what we did. So that was the first thing they had to turn, turn over. The second thing for Russia's reinstatement Um, was that they were going to accept the Richard McLaren report, which was after we brought the story public to the New York Times in May of 2016, Richard McLaren, uh, the investigator who was brought in by the World Anti-Doping Agency to investigate Rachenkov's allegations, authors this report over the next year. And the report, you know, basically, you know, goes down a rabbit hole of, of insanity of, mm. of how big this fraud was. And it was all backed up through scientific data and researchers and forensic evidence, et cetera. 
and that Russia had to accept the McLaren report as fact, right? And the third thing um, was that there was going to be like a massive reform to the anti-doping system and that there'd be all this oversight and all this stuff, right? So they had set this as the three things that Russia had to do to get back in. And here we are basically two years later, it's now actually at, at like the beginning of this year, right? And Russia still hadn't accepted the McLaren report, still hadn't mm -hmm. returned over the limbs data, but WADA reinstates them into competition, basically just going back on, the, on their own, you know, word that this had to happen. The point of this story is that they finally turn over this limbs data. And uh, I don't want to mess up the date, but this is sometime around a year ago. They finally turn over the limbs data. And in turning over the database, Russia go, had went in before they turned it over to WADA and had manipulated the entire database. But WADA already had the real database that Rochenkov had turned over to them uh -huh. of what it was supposed to be. Right? Right. And now the one that Russia's turns over has basically been completely manipulated to erase all these positives, to erase Rachenkov's evidence. But not only that, they had made notes into the database pretending to be Gregory writing these notes to basically blame the entire scandal again on Rachenkov, that this was all a big conspiracy, that Rachenkov had acted as a sole practitioner, KGB, FSB had nothing to do with this, the state wasn't involved. And WADA goes, what, what is this, guys? Like, are you, are you kidding me? Uh -huh. And so they basically reban Russia for another four years. Mm. And this is where it stands right now today. That's the current state. Russia is still suspended from international competition. Um, had the Olympics happened this last summer in 2020, the recommendation was WADA was going to be banned mm -hmm. from the, or Russia was gonna be banned from the summer Olympic games. We don't know if that was gonna happen because they were fighting that in the court of arbitration for sport. Right, that was unresolved. And the IOC had made the decision. So, you know, where this stands right now, you know, here, here we are, you know, essentially four years on, but two years on from uh, the Winter Games is Russia's continued to deny they're rebanned, banned again. Mm -hmm. As of right now, they're not going to the Summer Games if they were to happen in 2021. And Rochenkov is still, not only is he persona non grata, if you pull all the Russian media, I mean, this guy is essentially the arch enemy of arch enemies right. of, in the overall history mm -hmm. of the Russian Federation. I mean- And as long as Putin's in power, that will remain to be the case. I mean, we've heard reports from, you know, through his attorneys from CIA intelligence um, is that he is, you know, either number one or number two on Russia's kill list. Um, uh, about a year ago, if you remember, there were nine Russian agents that were kicked out of the country um, that uh, actually Trump administration had discovered these nine basically secret agents that were working mm -hmm. in the country and they kicked them out. They were supposed to be, I'm gonna botch this story, but apparently they were Russian diplomats and whatever, but then the State Department determined they were spies, right? Right, so they were actually 
working on behalf of the FSB to come and and sort of root out Rodchenko here in the States. Apparently three of those agents of these nine that were expelled from the United States were here hunting Rodchenko. Um, and there's re been reports on uh, Bellingcat, which is this investigative circle of journalists, um, that even when he was supposed to appear, they Russia thought that he was gonna appear at these hearings uh, in Luzon, Switzerland, um, which of course, you know, he appeared via like Skype or Zoom, mm -hmm. but they thought that he was going to be there in person. And there were agents that were in Luzon, essentially waiting for him. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, evidence that's been uncovered the last few years of, you know, they're, they're hunting this guy. That's so dark. And, um, you know, you look at uh, Nalvani, guy was poisoned in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, whenever that was five, six months ago um, with a Novichok and, and Skirpal, you know, uh, which was in March of 2018 uh, in the UK, the, you know, that poisoned him mm -hmm. and his daughter, Lithanenko, um, and then all these other mysterious murders and some that have, you know, been looked at as hangings and, and suicides and this, that, and the other. Um, it is clear that uh, you know Russia doesn't forget. Right. Wow. So, um, how has this impacted you personally? Like, are you on the receiving end of some of these threats, veiled or otherwise? Um, I have, uh, gratefully, I've I've never received uh, a threat, um, and I've never received a, an email threat or a text message threat or a social media threat. Um, and, you know, the way that I've always looked at it um, myself is that, um, you know, wh why would you shoot the messenger? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, Russia and you, you even hear Putin when uh, they asked him uh, about the, the, the Skirple poisonings and you can go look at interviews and they go, well, did you do this? And he goes, no, I, I didn't do this but treason is the highest crime and it should be punished. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, basically I didn't do this, but yeah, yeah. you know, if somebody did do this, this was warranted because treason is the highest crime. And I think, you know, and, and I, I can't speak for how, um, you know, Russia, but if you look at like even the poisoning of Alexander Lithanenko in 2006 um, or Skirpal, right? It was, these were acts of treason and Gregory is viewed as a traitor, um, a defector. Um, you know, and, I'm, and I would imagine that even Gary Kasparov is on that list, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as, as a defector and, uh, and a guy who was the pride of Russia, who has now, you know, come very, very public in the past yeah. several years, um, you know, against Putin. Um, but uh, hopefully, um, you know, I'm okay. And I, uh, uh, needless to say, I'm not planning any trips uh, to Moscow anytime soon. Yeah, and and now probably not this, not uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, definitely not Saudi Arabia. <laughs> What's happening yeah, now? Def definitely, definitely um, uh, not, not. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfect segue into the new film because that's essentially, you know, an overlapping narrative with what you explore in the, in, in the murder of Khashoggi, this idea of, you know, power unchecked where whether it's Putin or MBS, 
They kind of want you to know it's them without saying it's them because they wanna put the message out that they mean business. But perhaps there's also an underappreciation for the kind of global response and reaction to these events where there's a growing intolerance for this kind of thing. Like I suspect that MBS didn't anticipate the level of outrage that he kind of invited upon himself as a result of all of this. Well, I, I don't think he expected uh, that there was going to be a bug, a listening device in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul right. that was going to Blow the prove up, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, just flat out what had happened in that consulate. So I don't, I don't think the Khashoggi murder was just horrifying, but I don't think that MBS, um, when you go into the details of a case, it was so stupidly planned and it was so brazen and outrageous, but obviously they, they couldn't have imagined that there was a listening device mm -hmm. in the consulate, in the room, that they decided to murder him in. And that's a whole story about that. Right, I mean, that was a big question. And before we get too deep into this, we should probably just <laughs> synopsize the film a little right. bit for people that aren't familiar. But what wasn't completely clear is how that recording transpired. Like who, who set that bug? How did that transcript you know, get compiled? Like who, who hit record on what device and for what purpose? that well, basically records the entire process of murdering this journalist. Well, what had, what had happened as I learned in, in making the dissident is they had decided the, the Saudis that they wanted to rendition Jamal Khashoggi back to the kingdom. Uh, he, was, uh, he was writing in the Washington Post, you know, uh, not defending Trump and the Saudi regime, uh, Trump was a huge ally. So he was speaking out against US-Saudi relations and Trump. He was working with a Saudi dissident in Canada, mm -hmm. basically fighting uh, Saudi Arabia's control of Twitter, which is all part of the film. And he had come out you know, as speaking publicly that he didn't agree with a lot of parts of Mohammed bin Salman's vision 2030, which is, his concept of how to reform the kingdom. But everything that Jamal uh, was writing about, if you go back and read his Washington Post writings or even read um, books that he had published in Arabic, he was a moderate. Mm -hmm. You couldn't even consider him a liberal. Right. I mean, this best was- best a reformist from inside the system. Yeah, this was a, a moderate reformist who loved his country, who had no problem with the monarchy. He just believed because here was a guy who had been educated in the United States. He'd been coming to the US and to the UK his whole life, you know, most of the time working for the Saudi royal family mm -hmm. as, as somebody who was either, you know, not a diplomat, but a, you know, a liaison. He spoke fluent English or as a journalist for the kingdom, writing about, you know, what was going on. Um, and so this was a guy who really uh, was entrenched in that system in the family. And so his defection from the kingdom was an insider who really 
knew what was going on there, knew mm-hmm. these people. But he was portrayed all of a sudden in Western media as Muslim Brotherhood, as a terrorist sympathizer, as a guy who knew bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and all this stuff, and this was not true. He was a moderate who loved his country, and what he was writing about wasn't like, you know, down with Saudi Arabia, MBS must be overthrown, you know, the royalty has no place, the monarchy must abdicate the throne. None of that was going on. Mm -hmm. This was a guy who was going, I love my country. We have a young prince who I believe is starting to lead the country down the wrong path. He's talking about reforms. He's talking about, okay, women can be able to drive and there isn't gonna be this, uh, the, the guardian system where women have to check in with any man in the household who's 18 years or older to get permission to leave the house and all these things that Mohammed bin Salman was talking about changing in the kingdom. And at the same time, he's completely crushing opinions. He's crushing mm-hmm. anybody who has anything critiquing of him. You know, just anybody who dares speaks anything other than this guy is essentially mm-hmm. the chosen perfect, you know, right. monarch of all time. And so what Jamal was really writing about was, was hey, um, we can do better. We can be better. And you can be a monarch and also be kind. You can be a monarch and be compassionate. You can be you know, a king or a prince and inspire your people rather than repress them. And that was the the core of what he was doing. And that dissent led to a place where, you know, had he stayed in Saudi Arabia, he surely would have been jailed. Mm -hmm. And in leaving, he became hunted. And um, and ultimately the decision was, you know, uh, to, to murder him. Right. So historically, the relationship between the monarchy and the press in Saudi Arabia is kind of hagiographic, right? Like your job is to basically speak kindly of what's happening in the government for the most part. Exactly. He was able to still advocate for some level of reform within that construct and still covet favor with those in power. He kind of knew where that line was and how much he could push without transgressing it. But my sense is that over time, beginning with Arab Spring and kind of everything that happened after that, he started to get a little bit more active, pushing the buttons a little bit more, a little bit more, seeing where that line was. And at one point he crosses it, perhaps even unbeknownst to him. And there's this edict that comes down from the monarchy where they kind of disavow themselves of him, right? And then he realizes like, basically he's fucked. And he like catches a flight out of, out of the kingdom like that night without telling anyone. Thinking yeah, I mean, he could pop, he could go back at some point, but yeah, we all he, know he never did. He, uh, you know, and, and you see in, in the film, uh, we show some old clips of him and you see, um, you know, him speaking in English and appearing on, you know, on Western media uh, speaking in English. And so here is this guy who had spent his whole life, you know, back and forth between the West and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, he's in the kingdom and he starts essentially speaking out, not in any sort of like aggressive way, but basically tweeting or writing, hey, 
you know, I don't agree with this, or maybe this can be different. And, um, and this guy was, was listened to. He had 1.75 million followers mm. on Twitter, which, you know, is a big number, especially in Saudi Arabia. And so he was very respected. So unlike, you know, let's say a, you know, a young up and comer or this, that, and the other, this was now a, a very respected journalist coming out with his thoughts or opinions and somebody who knew the inside workings. And so Mohammed bin Salman had kind of put together this whole, I guess, army, as you'd call it, of people uh, to basically see to it that, that, you know, there was no free speech or freedom of opinion in mm -hmm. the kingdom. And uh, Saad al-Qahtani, who was uh, one of the royal advisors, uh, basically apparently comes up with this plan of how they are going to, you know, see to it, uh, you know, that, that there is no free speech in the mm -hmm. kingdom. And Saud reaches out to Jamal and tells him, don't write, don't tweet, don't talk, you're to remain silent. And, um, and basically if you don't, we're gonna, we're gonna come and arrest you. Right. Um, and there's threats being made and Jamal essentially makes a decision that he has to leave. He can't remain silent. And, and, and this decision we get into in the film, but you know, he was, he was married, he had children, his kids were living in the United States at, at the time. I didn't know. Um, and uh, two of the kids were in the U.S. One of the kids was in was in Saudi. Uh, was my understanding, and um, you know, and he was happily married. And he makes this decision that he has to leave, mm -hmm. um, and he has to leave. I think for two reasons, as as I understand it, and his friends, uh, who you know, who, who I got to know in the making of the film, tell me is that, you know, the idea that that he would sit there and be a lame duck and be silent and and that his whole life was as a writer was as a journalist was as a you know that now he was his voice was silenced was enough that it was so compelling that 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 he felt that it was better to to leave the country than to stay with his family and be silenced mm -hmm. and of course i think you know his family probably you know, was not thrilled with that decision. And, uh, you know, a after he leaves, he comes to Washington, he gets a job being a global opinions writer for the Washington Post. And there's a story, and I certainly can't validate the truth of it because of, you know, for, for reasons. But apparently um, the, uh, the Saudis come to... Um, to his family, to his wife, and tell her that she has to divorce Jamal mm -hmm. because only a husband can mm -hmm. grant mm -hmm. a divorce from his wife in the kingdom. Women, women are not allowed to divorce. A man has to grant right. a woman the right to divorce. And, and apparently they, they brought her in and you know, interrogated her and whatever and said, you're going to call your husband and tell him that he has to grant you a divorce. And, uh, and he did, mm. and he did because, you know, for her own good so that they would leave the family alone. 
And so he now was in Washington and, you know, he was uh, essentially isolated. Yeah. And that began the rebuilding of his life. It began essentially his uh, ultimately finding of Hatija Jengas, mm -hmm. uh, the girl that, uh, woman that he decided that he was going to remarry. And that led to him going into the consulate in Istanbul uh, where he's murdered because he had went there to seek marriage papers to prove that he was no longer married so that he can marry Hatija. Hmm. It's devastating. The idea that he would leave his entire family behind knowing he would never see them again. Well, the, the kids were in uh, Virginia and Washington, two, two of them at the time. They're now back in Saudi Arabia. They decided in the aftermath of his murders that basically they had two choices as I best understand it. Choice one was fight for justice for their father and you know the family would basically never be able to travel, right. be arrested, have their, you know, be ruined, right? Because how are you gonna take on this kingdom? And you have so many cousins and relatives and aunts and uncles. And I mean, you know, yeah. so, so it was like, okay, either we're gonna go fight for our father's death or we're gonna essentially accept a payout there's stories that the payout was in the tens of millions of dollars um, and remain silent mm -hmm. and move on with our lives. Mm. And the family decided to go that route because it wasn't just about the kids. It was our aunts, our uncles, our sisters, our brothers, our cousins that, you know, uh, whatever war we rage or fight in trying to fight for justice for our father, is putting every member of our family yeah. in danger. So I think ultimately the decision was made is, okay, we'll go back to Saudi, we'll shut up, we'll move past this and we'll take the money. Mm -hmm. In the structure of the film, it's very interesting the way you kind of set this up. You have these two protagonists that are essentially on a collision course with each other. You've got Khashoggi and all the events that led ultimately to his murder. But in parallel with that, there's this other guy, Omar, who's left the kingdom and is living uh, uh, in, uh, in Montreal. And ultimately these two cross paths on this kind of trajectory that, that Khashoggi is on from reformist journalist to becoming, you know, essentially a full-blown dissident. So talk a little bit about how you structured the film because it really does, I mean, I, I haven't even said this yet, but it's like the, the film is extraordinary. You did an unbelievable job. It's so compelling. Uh, and it plays very much like a narrative thriller. Like on some level, it's more like a Bourne movie than a documentary, like the score, all of the sound design, like every element of it is, keeping you on pins and needles the whole time. And there's like a gestalt, like a tempo to the movie that really is is very hyper-engaging and unusual for a documentary. Well, thank you. Um, that's certainly how uh, we and you know, myself and my creative partners uh, wanted the film to feel, sound, look, um, structured, 
um, is much like Icarus, but in this on a heightened level, I looked at this story and said, okay, it's a thriller. It's all true, but this is a thriller. The, the murder, the story of why he's murdered, how he's murdered, um, all the forces at play, the characters. This is um, like a Bourne film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so there was a very intentional construction cinematically and how we structured the film, paced the film, put the film together and use these cinematic techniques that you would see in An Enemy of a State or in those Bourne films um, or, you know, you name the kind of the spy thriller movie um, that were intentionally employed in the construction of this film while remaining true to being a documentary. I mean, mm -hmm. everything in the film we shot, everything in the film is a fact, everything in the film is researched and archived and backed by evidence. But structurally, um, my feeling as a, as a filmmaker and my you know collaborators is I think if you can engage an audience, you know, visually, you know, through sound, music, motion graphics, effects, all these kind of devices, then when you're watching like a big thriller, get you on the edge of your seat going, what's gonna happen next? And if you can do that, and especially in the case of this story, that hopefully the, the come away from, from watching The Dissident isn't just that you're on the edge of your seat and you're having that kind of cinematic thriller-esque experience, but that it also leads to a call to action because you're emotionally impacted because you didn't just watch a piece of news, you went on a journey mm -hmm. and that journey becomes very emotional, hopefully, in watching the film and that leads, um, what my intention would be and uh, is that there's a call to action behind it, that you come out of the film and you fall in love with Atisha Jengas, his mm -hmm. fiance, you care about Omar Abdulaziz and that his brothers are still jailed in Saudi with, right. no, with no charges and his friends are jailed in Saudi for two years without charges. And this guy is, lives in isolation, basically fighting you know, uh, the kingdom for freedom of speech. You, uh, you, know, you understand the truth behind this and want to do something about it as you see you know, the members of the G20 and the Trump administration essentially bury their head in the stand, mm -hmm. sand and condone this murder all for, all for money. Um, and so hopefully in the construction of the film being a thriller, that it also leads to um, a greater emotional response. And that was kind of the intention. Yeah. I mean, I knew the story I had read some of his pieces in in the Washington Post. I had a familiarity with kind of the the broader brushstrokes of what had transpired. What I was not aware of was one focus of the film being on on the extent of the surveillance state and how you know the the Pegasus malware and the hacking of the phones and how all of that like played into how the how this whole thing unfolded. Yeah, it was. Um you know, to, to back up, um, Khashoggi entered the consulate on, um, on October 2nd, 
basically two weeks later, I think it was the 16th, um, Saudi Arabia finally admitted that he had in fact died inside that consulate. And um, in the film, there's kind of the whole story of mm -hmm. how that kind of unfolds and the pressure that Turkey put on Saudi Arabia to get them to ultimately confess because they had the audio. And I had been following this story essentially from October 3rd, you know, Washington Post journalist um, vanishes inside of, you know, Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Right. And I'm reading this story as I think many in the world were, began following this story in those two weeks. And, you know, each day it was another shocking uh, um, allegation and that he had been dismembered and that the body was nowhere to be found and that they won't let him in the consulate. And there's Met with a crazier and crazier and, uh, excuses on yeah. behalf of the kingdom about what had happened. Uh, yeah, and, and, uh, and I'm reading this and um, I remember cause it was, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was October 16th, 17th. And I was in, uh, I was in Rome at the time. I had been invited to speak uh, for the Rome Film Festival. Um, and I was with my fiance and I'd been following the story. And as I started following that story in those two weeks in my mind, I was going, maybe this is the next film I wanna make. Mm. This seems to have all these ingredients because I had been looking at that point for about the, a year for what that next story I wanted to take on, what that next documentary I wanted to make was. And I felt kind of a lot of pressure and burden coming out of Icarus that mm -hmm. I wasn't gonna go and direct a Disney film. <laughs> I couldn't go, you know, whatever, uh, make the Stevie Wonder documentary or whatever that was, you know, like, yeah. like I was gonna have to, at least in my mind, I wanted to see to it that I was taking on something that was human rights, freedom of press, freedom of journalism, protecting a whistleblower, authoritarian regimes, dictatorships, all these kind of themes that, that as, a, as a storyteller, I wanted to be able to continue uh, uh, in, in that path. And here was this story of a journalist, and not only that, he's a Washington Post journalist, oh, and he's uh, fighting for free speech, and he's advocating for human rights and he disagrees with his authoritarian government and he's at essentially a war words with you know with the crown prince and now he's been murdered mm -hmm. and and i said okay this could be the one and the question was is can i essentially get access to this story to be able to tell it in a matter that isn't going to be something that's archival and there were three things that really hinged on it, which was one, there was the story of his fiance emerging mm -hmm. uh, of the girl, you know, Hatija Jengas, who was waiting for him outside the consulate. And I said, oh, wow, this is clearly the emotional cord of what this story is. I mean, the, the concept, I mean, which is unfathomable to me, it's unfathomable to anybody listening to this that, that, uh, the person that you love, that you believe you're going to marry and spend your life with, 
walks into a consulate, an embassy, you know, uh, to be murdered horrifically and that you're never going to see them again. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time become in Hadijah's case, the center of a global media storm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so all of a sudden you become famous and famous around the world to the point where you can't really even leave your house, not because of something you did that you're proud of, but because the, the person that you loved um, has met this horrific fate. Mm -hmm. And that to me was the first element that if I could get Hatija to work with me exclusively and share her story, the love story, that there would be a chance of being able to really tell this story. The, the second part of this was Omar Abdulaziz in Canada and, and in the days following Khashoggi's murder um, uh, and uh, the admission that Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, that he had died inside that consulate, there's a story coming forward in the New York Times of this young Saudi dissident who was living in Montreal, Omar Abdulaziz, um, and he was saying, I know why Jamal was killed. In fact, um, I was hacked by Israeli cyber surveillance software called Pegasus owned by the NSO corporation. And that Saudi Arabia had hacked my phone using this software Pegasus, Jamal was hacked too. And because my phone had been hacked, they knew that Jamal Khashoggi and I had been working on a project to basically take over the narrative back onto Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, as you'll see in the film, and if you read about this, Saudi Arabia basically was manipulating, and still to this day, manipulating Twitter, which was the only platform in the kingdom where people could have freedom of speech and opinion because Twitter is a decentralized platform. And if you create like different various Twitter accounts and you can create an account under a fake name or whatever you mm -hmm. want, right? That you can voice expression. And this was how the Arab Spring came to pass also. And, and a big argument for why anonymity on Twitter is something to be protected. So these dissident voices can be heard. Exactly. And, and 80%, sorry to interrupt. So 80, the point that you make that I also didn't know is that 80% of Saudi Arabians are on Twitter, whereas in the United States, it's like 20% or something. Yeah, so Twitter, because the, the platform is this kind of decentralized information platform, and because you can kind of, whatever, you can have a VPN, you can create a Twitter account under whatever, your name is Bugs Bunny 21 right? It, has become on a global level in repressive authoritarian regimes, ways that kind of like the resistance can communicate mm -hmm. with each other. And the Arab Spring only was able to happen because of Twitter, because they were able to plan events, they were able to plan marches, plan, you know, and Twitter became that platform uh, for dissidents to basically assemble. And what these authoritarian regimes learned and these Arab uh, governments in the case of Saudi Arabia, you know, basically a, a dictatorship, a monarchy, mm -hmm. which is similar as it is in the Emirates and, uh, and in Egypt, even though it's now, you know, uh, it's technically not a monarchy, but it's, but it's a dictatorship, um, is, is that if you could control Twitter, if you could control the narrative on Twitter, 
you could crush freedom of speech, you could crush opinion, and that you can put forward your propaganda. I mean, you even see this as happened in the Trump administration mm-hmm. over the last four years, where Trump has used the authoritarian playbook of using Twitter to basically bring forward false information, whether it's about election fraud, whether about, you know, yeah. voter fraud, whether it's about, you know, you name it, Trump has used Twitter as his platform to disseminate false information, lies, right? Well, these governments understand that Twitter can be used for that. And so Saudi Arabia puts together a plan to basically hire thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the kingdom to create false Twitter accounts and put forward onto Twitter these false goals of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Mohammed bin Salman is a great reformer. Mohammed bin Salman's vision 2030 is the best thing to ever happen to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is this, 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 and this, right? And so Twitter is being flooded, unbeknownst to the Saudi people, mm-hmm. with tens and tens of thousands of false tweets, all pro-government, all basically, you know, pushing forward this narrative. And at the same time, Saudi Arabia is spending you know, uh, depending on who you talk to, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars with global PR agencies with the same thing, that Mohammed bin Salman is the greatest thing to ever happen Mm -hmm. to Saudi Arabia, right? Well, Omar Abdulaziz realizes that this is what is happening on Twitter in Saudi Arabia is not real. These accounts are not real. These are fake accounts. These are accounts basically owned and controlled by the government of Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to put forward false opinions and lies and, and uh, you know, and false narratives about the kingdom. At the same time, what these accounts are doing is that anybody like, let's say, Omar Abdulaziz or Jamal Khashoggi puts forward a tweet saying, I disagree with Mohammed bin Salman. I think this, that these Saudi Twitter trolls or flies, this army of thousands, tens of thousands of people that have been hired to basically take control of Twitter, all of a sudden flood this dissenter's or, you know, person's Twitter account with, screw you, you should die, this isn't true, right? And so suddenly their tweet is completely suppressed, like it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And everything that is trending in the kingdom on on Saudi Arabia is pro-government, pro-monarchy, pro-MBS. So Jamal and Omar are working on basically a plan that they call the Bees Army to take control of the flies, where they're going to basically do the same thing that the Saudis have been doing on Twitter, except they're going to get dissidents within the kingdom and everywhere for them to create tons and tons of fake Twitter accounts. But their fake Twitter accounts will be basically putting forward freedom of speech, human rights, right? And that, and that ultimately this will be the war between the bees and the flies. Right. That two can play at this game. You want to put forward your false propaganda? All right, we'll put forward the truth and we'll, you know, tell the people what's really happening. So because Omar's phone is hacked with Pegasus and because Jamal's phone is hacked with Pegasus, Saudi Arabia knows what these two are up to mm-hmm. and that they are basically trying to reclaim control of Twitter. And this arguably is the biggest 
probably single reason why they decide to murder Jamal. Mm -hmm. Because it's one thing that Jamal is writing in the Washington Post, which was negative. But it's another thing if all of a sudden he and Omar and this army of dissidents basically can take back control of Twitter and Twitter is the way that Saudi Arabia gets their news. Mm -hmm. This is so fundamental to the kingdom in their narrative. And in the hacking of the phone, they're able to understand that Jamal is not only just writing in the Washington Post, they're able to understand that he's now working with a known dissident to take back control of Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I think that this was probably the breaking point where they decided that he needed uh, to be murdered. And they had tried to come to Canada and rendition Omar right. just months earlier. Those two dudes show up and try to cajole him into returning with promises that he'll get his own TV show and that MBS loves him. But it's Khashoggi who's saying, don't do that. You don't want, you don't want to do that. It's a trap. That's right. Hmm. And, and yet Khashoggi falls into the same trap. And, and he falls into the same trap, um, you know, to backs up. So they had um, agents basically came to Canada uh, with Omar's brother in tow, basically as like a hostage, you know, like, hey, Omar, if you don't come back to Saudi Arabia uh, and, you know, uh, we love you, which of course was not true at all, you know, uh, just know that we've got your brother. Mm -hmm. And Omar chooses not to go back to Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and after making that decision, they... Uh, arrest his brothers, um, 19 years old, and the other brothers a couple years older. And they have remained in a Saudi prison, tortured without charges for the last two years. And 33 of his friends, mm -hmm. just people that were linked to him, not dissidents, nothing, just, just by knowing Omar as basically this rendition tool of, hey, if you want your brothers to get out of jail, if you want your friends to get out of jail, you need to either be silent, you know, or you need to come back to Saudi Arabia yeah. where, you know, you're either gonna be imprisoned or be silenced, right? Um, and so that Omar has not happened, that Omar has continued to fight, so. Um, yeah, is he still doing his YouTube show? I mean, I, ch I checked his yeah. Twitter account last night and he's got over a half million people now. Yeah, he's him. got a half a million followers. And, and what happens on his YouTube show is every time he posts an episode, the kingdom uh, and their lawyers basically say that whatever it is, there's like he's using copyrighted material, he's uh, using uh, they get it pulled news, down. like things, and they get it pulled down. And so then he has to put it up somewhere else and they get it pulled down. But if you go onto his YouTube station, you'll see that, you know, it gets pulled down, it goes back up uh -huh. and, and there's, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of followers uh, that watch his essentially show, um, which is kind of like a, um, I don't know how you would best describe it, a, a Colbert, a Kimmel, a Fallon, right. you know. It's like what Bassem Youssef did in Egypt. Are you familiar with him? He was sort of the John Stewart of Egypt. I've heard leading, the name. Leading but up I to Arab Spring, he lives in, a, in the US now and he's been on the podcast, but it's a similar kind of situation. Yeah, where, where, where Omar's the first guy to kind of create a show, which is criticizing the kingdom, making jokes. He's taking kind of like looking at like US style talk shows. Right. And um, 
and does this show uh, as often as he can, looking at all the Saudi daily news and mm -hmm. looking at all the Saudi Twitter feeds and all the false narratives. And then he puts together this show going like, okay, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's <laughs> yeah. a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. and, and and also weaves in a lot of comedy mm -hmm. into it and is doing like even like sketches and things like wow. that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but but Jamal's murder seems to almost perfectly coincide with the bees actually succeeding in getting their their message and their hashtags to trend number one on Twitter. Like those seem to almost happen at the exact same moment. Simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. And that and I don't believe that that was an accident. Um, it was, as this was taking steam, I think the decision was made within the kingdom of we're going to, mm -hmm. we're going to send a message. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and when you understand that, that their phones were hacked, right? Um, then, then as you'll see in the film and, and in understanding the story behind this, um, you can see how that, that danger grew. And I think, you know, Jamal couldn't imagine, he couldn't believe that his own country could do that to him. And he had actually went um, about a, a month uh, before his murder uh, because he was going back and forth between Washington DC and Istanbul mm -hmm. where he's now uh, with this, with Hatija Cengiz. Yeah, Hatija lives there, right? Right. And so they had decided that they were going to have a life in both places. He bought an apartment or a condo for them in Istanbul and they were gonna split their time. They were gonna be together in Istanbul, then she'd come to Washington and study and she, you know, and he'd go back to Istanbul. So he'd, he had bought a place for them in Istanbul and he had originally went to the consulate in Washington DC and actually met with um, the US ambassador at the time to uh, the Saudi ambassador to the US at the time, um, who was Mohammed bin Salman's brother, right? And he goes into the consulate in Washington DC uh, asking for these marriage papers. And they say, we're happy to give you these papers, no problem at all, but you need to get them in Istanbul. Hmm. You know, you want to marry a Turkish woman, you need to get them at the consulate in Istanbul, right? So he comes out of this meeting in Washington, kind of being welcomed. He's, you know, met with the prince's brother who he already knew, right? And he's assured everything's fine, no big deal. You just need to go get him in Istanbul. So when he goes into the consulate in Istanbul the first time, they welcome him, they're nice to him, but they say, oh, hey, we need to prepare these papers. But they knew that he was gonna be coming mm -hmm. to that consulate in Istanbul already, you know? Mm. So they go, okay, now we got a shot at him. Mm. So- Because they, he, weren't, they weren't gonna do it on American soil. Exactly. Right. They weren't gonna do it on American soil. And the two, the the like bifurcation, like you're, you're gonna have to come back in five days, allowed them to get their plan in motion and get these guys out from the kingdom to be in the consulate when he arrived. Exactly. But he was nervous, like he brought 
Hadisha with him the first time, both times. Both times. Because uh, he, he, he wasn't quite certain that it was gonna be okay. Well, not only that, he left his phones and his computer and everything with Hatisha because the both times that he went in, he basically left everything with, with her and said, hey, if something happens to me, um, here's Wada Khanfar's information, here's Yasin Akhtai's information, here, you know, mm. here's these people to call. And so, you know, he goes in the first time and they're nice to him, they're warm to him. And they say, no problem, Jamal, we'll give you the paperwork. We just need a few days, come back in a week. And so he leaves kind of going, okay, uh, everything's okay. Right. And that gives them this week to essentially plan his murder. And he goes back a week week later and, you know, when, when he uh, was, was murdered. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but clearly, you know, I mean, him leaving his devices um, with Atesia, um was even on his return back in. He, there was, I'm sure, that part of him going like, okay, here's my phone, here's my this. And, and in the transcript of his murder, um, which we have in the film, and um, uh, to this day, that transcript has not been released. Um, there's only a few people in the world that have it. It's uh, CIA, British intelligence, a French, uh, the Turks, of course, and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a whole story behind how I uh, finally obtained the transcript. Uh, and in this transcript, um, you know, he makes note that he doesn't have his phones on him. He's asked to send uh, a message to uh, his son telling him that he's okay and that if he doesn't hear from him for a few days, not to worry. And he doesn't, you know, have right. his phones with him. And he even says, my fiance or, you know, is waiting for me outside. Um, and uh, so those devices and his computer and everything uh, were brought into evidence. And I've been told uh, that they did find Pegasus on those devices. Mm-hmm. The transcript is horrific. I mean, it's just, it's gut-wrenching. Um, what's interesting is the Saudis were able to uh, delay the investigation for something like two weeks, right? I think it was the 15th of October before they finally let the Turks into the consulate. Yeah, thereabouts, I don't, uh, yeah. Something like that. It was, it was a good two weeks and yeah. And in those two weeks, of course they were able to clean up right. the murder scene. Um, and, and Not quite I, as well as they should have. No, I mean, they, uh, they never found, um, what, what's interesting and in, in, in the transcript also is in the, and I don't get into this in, in the film in great detail, but in the um, five or six days from the time he first enters the consulate, and then goes back and returns. Um, Saudi Arabia puts this mission into kind of high motion and they actually um, bring two different teams there ahead of the murder. One of the teams um, two days before he's murdered is to sweep the consulate for listening devices for bugs and they don't find one. Mm. And the listening device was only in this one room where they had secure communications 
And we still don't know to this day how that listening device got there, whose device it was. Was it the Turks? Was it another country who handed it over to the Turks? Not sure. That's super interesting. Cause yeah, that's never explained in the film. I've and the, never heard an explanation for who recorded it. And the Turks will never tell you how they got it. Uh-huh. You know? Um, that prosecutor is like a badass. He is like out of like a Bond <laughs> film, know. isn't he? I and his mean, accent is like unbelievable. I mean, he is every filmmaker's yeah. dream and the, uh, you know, he's never spoke on camera mm. about the crime to this day. I don't think there's a single interview out there of him other than what you'll see in The Dissident. And, uh, you know, I, I think he carries a heavy burden mm -hmm. um, with with this case in particular. Mm. In the wake of all of this becoming global news, you have MBS back in the kingdom trying to figure out how he's gonna control this narrative that is quickly eluding his ability to manipulate, right? Which gets us into the Pegasus hack of, of Bezos's phone, which is fascinating. We all remember when you know his, his personal pictures got leaked. Was it the Post, the New York Post? Uh, yeah, it was the, uh, it was the uh, um, like the Inquirer. I was inquired, yeah. yeah. Right. And um, and basically uh, there were stories coming out that Bezos is having an affair and that uh, and that there's photos that were essentially gonna be, you know, published of like selfies that he had mm -hmm. sent to Lauren Sanchez. Right. And uh, there was even a, apparently a nude or, you know, and then he and, pulls like the baller move of the century by getting ahead of it and making all of that available. Right. To anybody uh, who would want he to basically see it. puts together this post on uh, Medium going, uh, here's what's happened. Uh, I was hacked. Uh, my phone was hacked. Um, and uh, I'm not going to be blackmailed. And they were trying to blackmail me. And this is all a blackmail extortion attempt because. Uh, I own the Washington Post and the Saudis are mad at me uh, uh, because they, the Saudi Arabia, to back up, Bezos owns the Washington Post. And, and in the fallout of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, right? Uh, Khashoggi wrote for the Post. Mm -hmm. So the Post has the biggest knife in the fight and they are pushing this story forward. And, and the... Fascinating thing behind the Khashoggi murder, but what got the world involved was had Jamal been painted in the press and the media as Saudi journalist enters consulate in Istanbul killed, right? It would have fallen on deaf ears. But because it's an American paper, the you know New York Times, Washington Post, right? Mm -hmm. And they're putting forward this story that it's not just a, it's not a Saudi journalist, it's a Washington Post journalist. So now Jamal is essentially an American and this catches the world's attention. Had he not been a Washington Post journalist, because in all the news, it wasn't Saudi journalists, mm -hmm. it was Washington Post journalists. And here's this publication that he had worked for, right? And that's what caught the world's attention. It was a Washington Post journalist. And so what MBS couldn't, you know, um, I guess separate in his mind is the idea that you can own a newspaper 
and not have control of the newspaper, <laughs> right? Right. So just because you own the New York Times doesn't mean in the United States that you control the New York Times. If you're a free paper, right, you don't have control yeah. over what the paper actually writes. You can, you know, I'm sure there's whatever. I mean, for Fox News, it's basically putting mm -hmm. forward its thing, but ultimately there is still a freedom of press there. So the Washington Post is pushing this forward, mm -hmm. this story forward globally and making the Khashoggi murder, you know, a huge, huge global story. They're running ads in the paper, full page ads in the paper behind the murder. They're putting up billboards. They are, you know, the Washington Post is not letting this story die. And MBS in his mind is going, well, hey, Jeff Bezos, you own the Washington Post. You can make this stop. Yeah, kill it. And behind the scenes, those guys had been in communication with each other because exactly. MBS was trying to get Amazon up on its feet in the kingdom. Right, so they, they, had, they had business dealings together. There was a whole deal for a, I don't know, billions of dollars of a cloud server that Amazon was gonna do with the kingdom. And, um, and lo and behold, MBS hacks Bezos's phone with Pegasus, but, um, or we think it's Pegasus, um, but he had actually been hacked before the Khashoggi murder. Mm. So he had been sending Bezos's messages and all of a sudden Bezos gets this video message of like a soccer match in Saudi Arabia versus, I can't remember, Norway. And Bezos clicks on this message and it's like, huh, what, what, what is this message? You know, he's kind of right. perplexed by it. But lo and behold, that was hacking his phone. And so in the fallout of the Khashoggi murder, as all of a sudden Bezos's affair is being leaked to the public, you know, Bezos brings on an investigation team of you know, forensic cyber examiners who go into his devices and they're watching the data stream mm -hmm. out of his phone right, and linking it to a server known to be a Saudi server, you know? And so, you know, you go, okay, well, how else was this information coming public? Uh, it, it was clear mm. that, that, you know, that he had been hacked. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, you go, okay, if you can hack the richest man in the world, right. who can't you I get? I mean, that's the kind of scary message that you leave everyone with. Like nobody is out of bounds here. Nobody is out of bounds. And, and I think one of the, the themes in the film is the battlegrounds the, the, of the world right now are not being fought with weapons it's being fought in the cyber sphere. Right. And these are the biggest weapons in the world right now. You look at the Nepetya virus a couple of years ago in the Ukraine, that was a Russian virus that shut down the entire power grids in the Ukraine and basically completely hobbled the Ukraine and all these major shipping companies. Andy Greenberg writes mm -hmm. about this in his book called Sandworm. And a lot of people don't know this story, but this was the single biggest cyber attack in the world's history so far against the Ukraine because it crippled all the global shipping agencies, it crippled FedEx, it basically infected their systems and brought down you know, these companies to their knees for this period of time and cost billions and billions of dollars. And to this day, people don't even realize what happened. And this was a cyber mm -hmm. attack. 
or in the case of these cyber firms like NSO, is what you read and what you learn is that there is hacking software. You know, there was an idea a few years ago, okay, you know, Apple and the government trying to get Apple to turn over codes and stuff. Mm. They don't need that anymore. Mm. There's now private software being developed by private companies. In this case, this is a company called NSO out of Israel. All of these sales have to get approved by the Israeli government, but Israel basically is allowing the sale of this software to pretty much any government in the world because when they sell this software, Israeli intelligence is also gaining insight into who each one of these companies wants to hack. You know, wow. so okay, say so Israel right. and NSO sells Pegasus to the Saudis, right? And you go, well, why would Israel want Saudi Arabia to have this hacking technology? Well, not only is it lucrative and they're paying millions of dollars per, you know, for these licenses, but on the back end, right, NSO and Israeli intelligence are able to know who Saudi Arabia is hacking. Mm who they're after, what they're in touch. So, so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's really nutty. But what you understand is that this technology is also now in private hands. And much like what Snowden, you know, unveiled to the world, um, you know, with what, uh, you know, our, our uh, government was doing and what the NSA was doing in, in, in listening into people's devices and you know and all the information he brought forward what you're seeing is that this is even much worse than we can imagine because governments around the world essentially with just somebody's phone number mm -hmm. can go in and hack somebody's device take control of that device know everything about that person and this is and this is a completely unregulated part of of the cyber landscape, that there is no regulation uh, in this regard, other than, you know, the United States knows that the Saudis have this technology and they know the Emirates have this technology and the Emirates knows that, you know, other countries have this technology. And the ability to destabilize geopolitics and do it essentially invisibly is so potent and frightening, right? And what, what's interesting about this is it shares a common theme with, with Icarus in that this search for a competitive advantage um, creates a situation in which the advantage is always ahead of the detection method, right? In the sense that doping is always kind of two steps ahead of our ability to detect it and creates this, you know, this sort of tension between those two competing entities. Here we have cyber warfare just miles ahead of our ability to even understand it, let alone preemptively get in front of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting analogy. I never really thought about it that way. Um, and that's a, a really uh, good and interesting analogy, which is um, I think what we see as a society and technology is every time we have this a, a newer technology, another thing unleashed, it's incredible in some sense. And on the same hand, it's that more invasive and invasive technique. And, mm -hmm. and you can look at this across all these platforms, even like, like Google, right? Okay, so Google buys Nest cameras, right? And so now if you have a Nest camera, 
the only way to actually have other people uh, have access to the Nest is to integrate it in through Google Home. Right. But your Google Home account is linked to your Gmail account. And your Gmail account and your Google account is linked to all your web searches and everything. I mean, so you go, oh, my God, what kind of information does Google have on me? They have access to my home. They have access to my cameras. They have access, you know, if you're Ring or Nest, right? They have access to my security systems. They have access to my web searches. They have access to my emails. They have, right? And so you have, A, these companies, you know, whether that's Facebook and Instagram. And I mean, the other day I I was literally thinking of going and uh, taking a trip and was trying to figure out where to go and, uh, and, um, you know, I did a search for like the Bahamas, right? And all of a sudden on my Instagram yesterday, <laughs> yeah. I'm getting ads yeah. about resorts in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. I'm literally going, what? Yeah. Why on my Instagram feed are resorts in the Bahamas coming up? And yet there they are. The scarier thing is when you just say it out loud and you don't do a search and then you get the ads. Right, Siri. Google Assistant, all that stuff. So, you know, you have like Sonos speakers and you uh-huh. hook it up to your Google Assistant and you go, hey, Google, play Led Zeppelin, yeah. right? And then the next thing you're doing, you're saying, buy the Led Zeppelin, right. you know, box set. When you, uh, <laughs> when you interviewed the cyber security expert dude that, that kind of figured out that Omar's phone had been hacked, did you have him look at your phone? Uh, John Railton Scott, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had my devices um, looked at. Um, I have um, a monitoring device on my phone, uh, which is actually uh, hopefully would show if all of a sudden my phone starts pinging towers that it isn't supposed to, to ping. So the way that they look um, to figure out if you've been hacked, right? is it's not like, oh, you've got some virus in your phone. And like, I think the way that most people think about, oh, I've been hacked or I'm getting, you know, malware of crashing. The way that cybersecurity experts look um, at where you've been, if you've been hacked is um, apparently our phones really only communicate to a handful, and I don't know what that handful is, whether that's 100, 200, whatever it is, kind of global satellites and servers, you know, Google and uh, and Apple and Amazon and all these different servers and satellites that essentially are in control mm-hmm. of all data and communications, right? So your phone is pinging like this satellite, right? or pinging this this server connected to a satellite, whatever the technical thing of it I'm messing up, but right, but it's not that many. Like, so, okay, if we're going on Amazon, right, it's, it's going there, or no matter what that search is, because our search engines, right, it's like, okay, it's Google, it's Safari, it's uh, whatever that is, Firefox or something mm-hmm. like that, and so, Everything that we're doing on our phones or our Apple or our Androids, right, right, are ultimately going through these different massive 
infrastructure, you know, servers, satellites. So the way that they figure out if you've been hacked is if all of a sudden there's information coming from your phone to essentially a satellite server, right? That is not part of one of these big servers because mm -hmm. there's no reason why your phone would be communicating mm. with that server. And if, and if what they're watching when they are looking at your phone is all of a sudden you have data being extracted out of your phone, that your uploads are much more than your downloads because why would your uploads be more than your downloads, right? You're, right. you're downloading you're information, information to your phone, yeah. not uploading information out of your phone. And it's communicating with one of these servers, which they don't know. That's how they're looking at whether or not a hack has happened. Well, it would seem relatively elementary to have an app that could run a diagnostic on that and let you know if something is awry. Well, it's more complicated than that now because basically um, you would need to as, as like John Relton Scott, who um, is the citizen lab in Canada and they're, and they're the ones who figured out that Omar had been hacked with Pegasus. And the way that they figured out that Omar had been hacked with Pegasus and they actually are, you know, one of the people, if not the people that discovered Pegasus um, and they've published mm. um, other hacks of Pegasus and other people who've been targeted. And if you go in and research, you know, uh, the Citizen Lab uh, out of Canada, out of, um, out of Toronto, the Monk School uh, in Toronto is where they're, they're funded, um, is they, in their research, were basically looking at, you know, information streaming to these servers that they identified um, as not being part of, you know, all these ones that are legitimate, mm -hmm. right? Where your traffic would flow from Apple, mm -hmm. right? Or, or Google. Um, and in identifying these servers, they were able to start identifying uh, the use of these uh, servers. And, um, and so in the case of Omar, when they got his device, they were seeing that essentially there was a device in Canada, right? communicating with one of these servers that they had deemed to be owned, to be a Saudi server mm. uh, that they believe was using, you know, Pegasus software. Um, and so I guess the, the back end of this is understanding what all these servers are, where they are, and they're, they're always changing too. So the, so the game kind of like the doping thing that you say is that it's always, it's, you're only as good as you were today, but if a new substance comes out right. that's unable to avoid detection or a new super drug, right? Well, you wouldn't test positive even though you're positive because it's undetectable, which is much like, okay, you're going to test for breast cancer, right? Well, the test for breast cancer is this test, right? You're gonna test this, this, and this, and if that doesn't show up, then well, then you don't have breast mm -hmm. cancer. But if there's a new strain of breast cancer, which they haven't developed a test for or that they don't know about yet, right? You would test negative mm -hmm. for breast cancer, even though you might have breast cancer, mm -hmm. hypothetically, mm -hmm. or for anything. Right. Well, the same applies to doping in you know substances and that you're only gonna, you're, you know, you can't detect something unless you're being tested for that. And the same in the world of cyber and hacking, 
is that, okay, they're going to plug in all the known variables, but if there's a new variable, a new server, a new technology, yeah. a new, right, they're not going to know if you've been hacked. Yeah. It is really frightening. Unbelievably. Yeah. Yeah. Amazingly, in the wake of all of this, we see uh, politicians, uh, you know, standing up, calling for you know action to do the right thing, and we're talking about people like Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul, right? And yet, we then see you kind of conclude the film with you know Trump vetoing any any kind of deleterious action that would that would harm the kingdom. Well, what, so where does that leave us, like? geopolitically, like what do you make of how this whole thing kind of shook out? Well, to, to backtrack into that, um, you, what, what we see in, in, in the film is that um, there has been no punishment for Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. There has been no meaningful sanctions taken, not only in the United States, but by all members of the G20. And what we see was there was bipartisan support from both the Republicans and the Democrat to have sanctions to stop weapon sales to Saudi, to basically um, you know, uh, attempt to stop the war in Yemen. Um, and that ultimately the Trump administration vetoed all these actions. And in Bob Woodard's book that he just published where he had recorded all these conversations with Trump, Trump actually flat out said, and has said, I saved MBS's ass. So this is actually something that Trump is proud of, that he basically uh, protected the relationship uh, with himself or the United States, mm -hmm. however you wanna look at it, in Saudi Arabia, by not punishing Mohammed bin Salman uh, for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, or in stopping weapon sales, or standing up uh, against the war in Yemen. So. You know, this is something that, you know, the Trump administration is very proud of, despite what you've seen as bipartisan support in the United States mm. to basically take action to reassess the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, Joe Biden actually on the second year anniversary of Jamal's murder, which just passed on October 2nd, uh, put out a statement uh, saying, you know, if I'm elected president, he's now been elected president. Um, uh, one of one of the things that I'll be doing is reassessing mm. the U.S. Saudi relationship, looking at sanctions, looking at action, and you know, and he basically sent out a tweet, you know, like justice for Jamal, um, and even since he's been president elect, he's said again that he is planning to, um, you know, really dive into U.S. Saudi relations in light of all their human rights abuses. Uh, and what's happening in the kingdom. So there, there appears to possibly be um, some sort of positive outcome coming from this. Mm -hmm. um, but to date, you have seen no member state of the G20 and, or the United States take any action against this. And this really just speaks to, I think, the global economic relationship of Saudi Arabia and the world. Um, unlike, you know, let's say a, a country, you know, even like Russia, right? Uh, where 
the economic stakes are not as high because of the investment. What we see out of the kingdom is because Saudi Arabia uh, has the single largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, meaning that they have more money to invest into other essentially mm -hmm. countries and buy stuff in any other country. Mm -hmm. um, and they are so liquid in their investments. Uh, they're also basically, you know, all the money in SoftBank, the world's largest hedge fund is Saudi money, mm -hmm. right? That not just governments, but companies around the world don't know how to say no to the investment. And in case of this film, um, yeah, which that leads me into the question around distribution of this movie and how you financed it. We have, uh, we have fought a real uphill battle. Um, the, in the making of the film, uh, the Human Rights Foundation, uh, Thor Halverson, uh, who started the foundation, Gary Kasparov is its, um, uh, is its CEO. Um, decided to fund the film because the Human Rights Foundation um, actually had invited Jamal Khashoggi to one of its uh, freedom forums called the Oslo Freedom Forum mm -hmm. uh, that they host every year in Oslo where they bring together uh, dissidents from all over the world that have either fled their countries or are escaped from their countries or, you know, to come and speak about these oppressive regimes and what's going on in their country. And so the work of the Human Rights Foundation aligns with this film and they have uh, helped to fund and give voice to dissidents all over the world um, from oppressive regimes and fighting for freedom of speech and democracies and, uh, and, and whether it's the, you know, the Uyghurs in, uh, in China uh, or whether it's what's been going on in Venezuela or whether it's, you know, oppression in Russia or you know, you name it. Mm. Um, the Human Rights Foundation uh, and their mandate is basically um, to try to protect human rights and freedom of speech and democracies and fight against authoritarian dictatorships. And so um, when I decided I wanted to make this film, uh, Thor Halverson and I met through a mutual friend and he said, I... I actually met Jamal. He was at the Oslo Freedom Forum back in May and he was murdered in October. And, um, you know, uh, we've been talking to Omar Abdulaziz to invite him to an Oslo Freedom Forum and mm. Iyad al-Baghdadi, who you see in the film, who's a, uh, another dissident, actually has spoken many times at the Oslo Freedom Forums and involved with the Human Rights Foundation. You know, um, we'd love to, we'd love to do this. And so they came in and, uh, and back the film and have been my partners in making the film. And uh, we premiered the film at Sundance, mm -hmm. uh, which it's so crazy that that was nine, 10 months ago and it was just before COVID. Right. It was like the last hurrah. So it was just before, right. it was literally, yeah, exactly. As soon as you got home, clamped down. Boom. And uh, apparently Sundance now turns out to be like a super spreader event, right? <laughs> right, that's right. And um, at our premiere there is uh, Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. came to the premiere and Alec Baldwin and um, uh, and each time we show at Sundance, we have standing ovations um, uh, and the most incredible reviews I've, I've ever read from you know the, the trades and the critics that were there. 
uh, I was really taken back by them. And um, and we come out of Sundance on you know the top ten films of Hollywood Reporter and the top ten Variety and the top eight of AP and all mm-hmm. these you know incredible accolades to not a single offer of distribution, not one. That speaks louder than words. Not a penny being offered for the film, not a dollar, nothing. That is so crazy. And here is, you know, the company that I did Icarus with that I believe is my partners, silence. Hmm. Here's Amazon and Jeff Bezos and me believing that, well, Bezos would have a knife in this fight. Yeah, you'd think he'd be the number one choice. Silence. And every one of the major global streamers, global media, entertainment companies, studios that could have acquired and given life to this film, silence. And what we see here is essentially that the dollar, the Saudi investment, the potential to grow in that region, to gain subscribers into Saudi Arabia. And here, you know, Netflix took off Hassan Minaj's show for criticizing MBS. They pulled like a whole episode, right? They pulled a whole episode and just a few weeks ago, they announced an eight slate deal uh, with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and is, is Saudi Arabia invested in Netflix? Are they an equity partner in that company? I have no idea. But I, I, I think what we see, and it speaks not just to Netflix, it's, not, it's, it's across the board, is that um, human rights and freedom of speech isn't just in, in danger and being suppressed in places like Saudi Arabia, it's here in the United States where essentially our economic interests and these interests of these massive companies that have the ability to disseminate information, that have the ability for a global audience to see something and learn and take action and stand up against forces like this and bring about change, are choosing their business interests and economic interests and their shareholder interests over what their audiences actually would want to see mm-hmm. um, or would want to see on top of seeing Love is Blind. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a very, um, we're in a moment here where these companies have grown so big and so powerful and we're in this huge global landscape. Whereas years ago, you could go, okay, hey, you're a company and you're just distributing the film for the United States. So you're like, okay, we can put this out in the United States, no problem. But now the formula is, is global. And so nobody wants to put something out with the idea that, oh, you might upset China. Mm -hmm. You might upset uh, Russia. You might upset Saudi, you might upset Egypt, you might upset Brazil, you might, wherever you call it. And so the appetite for content that actually is taking on subject matter such as this over the last couple of years has been completely and utterly diminished. Mm-hmm. And, and these companies are now operating much in the way of like a government 
where you're going, okay, do we punish the murder of Alexander Litvinenko? Well, if we do that, what are we doing? Are we sending, are we starting a war with Russia? No, we're not going to do that. Are we going to stop doing business with Russia? No, we're not going to do that. Are we going to sanction Russia to the tune of gazillions of dollars so that it hurts our economies? No, we're not going to do that. So ultimately we go, all right, we'll let you get away with murdering this dissident on foreign soil. And just like what has happened in the Khashoggi murder, where essentially they've been able to get away with it because of the amount of money and business and, and investment, we're seeing this stretch way beyond governments. And it's now in these media companies and corporations where a couple months ago, Amazon announced that they were acquiring Souk. Souk was essentially the Amazon of Saudi Arabia, right? right. So now Amazon owns Souk. So Amazon controls, right? Commerce in the kingdom. Commerce in the kingdom. Wow. And so ultimately the decision was, okay, acquire the dissident or continue our billions of dollars of business that we're gonna yeah. do in the kingdom. Yeah, it's we'll not, do a, the business it's not in the a, kingdom. It's not a difficult economic right? decision to make. And it's amazing that we can all rally around uh, a free speech issue when it's confronted with, with you know, uh, um, a government that is, you know, trying to clamp down on it through, you know, by way of of laws, right? But here we are in the West, where we technically have freedom of speech, and yet economic interests are creating this unbelievable chilling effect on the free exchange of ideas, and it's happening right underneath our eyes. We're seeing this um, progressive restriction as a result of those economic tectonic plates, but also from the people themselves. It's like, we're, we're, we're policing ourselves when it comes to free speech. So it's a very different conversation around free speech than that which you know, we're talking about when we look at places like Saudi Arabia. Well, I, I have um, many friends who will go unnamed that had various projects in development with these major media companies that looked at things from you know, on human rights levels, on uh, political levels, on stories such as this, and that these global streamers have all basically said, no, we're not gonna do these stories anymore. Mm. Um, I have heard stories of unnamed companies, but among these companies that basically have had shareholder meetings where they have discussed in these meetings that anything that is political, anything that uh, were to, you know, uh, take on the Trump administration or were to take on China or were to, you know, uh, go against, you name it, we're no longer interested in. And, and the reason being is because the growth in these regions, right, is more important than the human rights in these regions. And so, you know, ultimately, if you can expand, let's say, and have millions of subscribers in Saudi Arabia, a wealthy country, and have all this revenue from Saudi Arabia versus showing these awful human rights abuses in the country, well, you're gonna take the money uh, over what is ethics and morality. And I think it's been a, it's been a rude awakening to me um, as a filmmaker and as, um, and as an activist um, 
to think that um, that this is kind of happening because I, I view that in a, that those who have wealth and power in a perfect world, and especially in the Western world, should be the ones who are standing up uh, and having the strength to shed light for the world into places where people are being oppressed or suppressed. And just like you see with the NBA in China or ESPN in mm -hmm. China, being able to walk away from all these abuses or what China has been doing in Hong Kong, yet all these companies are still doing business with China, despite them trying to turn Hong Kong into, you know, <laughs> into, right. into a, a dictatorship, right? And yet nobody's willing to stop doing business with them. Hmm. And, and uh, we're seeing this across the board and, and it's disheartening uh, for someone like me who wants to continue to make films like this and bring stories like this forward, having to struggle um, to have uh, this content seen. And, and I would have thought that having had the honor of winning an Academy Award, uh, would have changed that. Right, giving you a little bit more latitude and doors swinging wide open at Netflix. You would think, hmm. um, but that is not the case. And then on the other hand, you can see this from a company's perspective, right? You watch in The Dissident how Jeff Bezos is able to be hacked. You watch how somebody is able to be chopped up and murdered so if you're that company, right, on the flip side, you can imagine those internal conversations of going like, I don't want them to hack us. I don't want them to hack my company. I don't want them to take down my servers. I don't want them to launch a Twitter campaign against us. I don't want it, you know? Right, and, and, and not that you need to covet favor with MBS, but no need to antagonize him when there's so much business opportunity to be had potentially in the future. Right, and there's so much risk to be had by taking that on. Right. And, and I think that that equation, um, ultimately I don't think the word is bad decision-making. I think leads into risk assessment analysis. Mm -hmm. And each one of these companies or corporations, there's risk assessment. And that risk assessment analysis is okay, on one hand, whatever, hundreds of millions of people will see the film and there'll be accolades and there'll be this, that, and the other. On the other hand, maybe X, Y, Z can happen. Um, another filmmaker I admire, Ryan White, uh, who did The Keepers, mm. uh, did a film this year called Assassins and it's on the murder of Kim Jong-il's uh, half-brother in Malaysia by the two women that basically poison him at the airport, right? And you go, it's North Korea. Again, Ryan's film, nobody has stepped up on a global level to distribute this. It's being distributed by a small distributor. And- I've never heard of it. Yeah, that's a great film. And again, he was at Sundance and the story is the exact story of a dissonant, which is all of these global streamers and here Ryan had had tremendous success with the keepers and Netflix, right? And, uh, and ultimately they went, oh, well, the Sony hack, right? Was mm -hmm. the North Koreans. 
And that was really embarrassing for Sony. And this was over a film B interview, which was a comedy. Right. And so all these global streamers are going like, okay, they hacked Sony, they messed him oh, up, God. screw it. It doesn't matter that Assassins is an important film. It doesn't matter that it's insight into North Korea. It doesn't matter that it shows how what this is. Not for us. We don't want the risk. And um, so I think there has to be a reimagining uh, for storytellers um, uh, or activists that want to see to it that their content can be globally seen and um, and maybe a new platform mm -hmm. is ultimately created that that allows this. But the counter to this is uh, Briarcliff Entertainment, Tom Ortenberg, um, who was running uh, Lionsgate and then Open Road and and did Spotlight mm -hmm. uh, and did Crash and did Fahrenheit 9/11 and um, has been a real champion for you know for for difficult films that you know uh, came forward uh, you know about six months ago and uh, acquired the film and so the dissident. We had planned that it was going to come out into theaters. It was going to go on a thousand screens on October second, mm -hmm. and of course, with COVID, that <laughs> that right. wasn't going to happen. So then we changed the plan again to December eighteenth, and we're still in COVID, so that's not happening. So now it's coming out in limited theaters where theaters are open, December twenty fifth. And on January 8th, it will launch across all on-demand platforms where people can rent the movie. So mm. it will be on iTunes, it will be on Amazon for purchase, it will be on uh, Xbox and Roku and Fire Stick and Comcast and uh, DirecTV um, and all those places. So I'm, so I'm optimistic that, you know, it'll, it'll find its way. It won't, it's not gonna be in front of, uh, you know, a couple hundred million subscribers with uh, a subscription to Netflix, mm -hmm. but it will make its way into the world. Yeah, it'll find its way. And so the December 25th limited release is, you know, on the before the year turns over is for Oscar consideration, right? Isn't that still the thing? It has to premiere in a theatrical way before. That's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, I think yes. so, right. And then it'll be available after that. January 8th. Yeah. And, Luckily, our um, uh, our partnership with the um, um, I guess they call it PVOD, paid on demand mm -hmm. um, company Vertical, is you know for for the longest time I think it was a forty five day window. You couldn't if you launched in a theater, you couldn't have it on demand within forty five days. But with COVID, right. um, all of the rules are changing now, and so we're able to come into theaters on December 25th and be available mm. uh, for on demand on, yeah. uh, on, uh, on January 8th. So, you know, ex excited for the film to, to be seen. Cause I, I really, uh, I just, uh, Hatija Jenga's Jamal's fiance. I mean, she's become like a sister to me. And mm. for me, this film has gone so far beyond um, making a film. I, I, I just feel so personally connected to the story and and as an activist, um, you know, I'm still uh, involved in this on a daily yeah. basis. Hatisha came to Sundance, right? She came to Sundance, yeah. yeah. Is she still living in Istanbul? She's in Istanbul. She had, um, 
she had, uh, got a place in Washington, D.C., was starting her foundation to seek justice for Jamal, uh, and then COVID happened. And she went back to Istanbul, and she's been there since. Mm. So hopefully on the other side of COVID, she'll come back to Washington and resume work. And hopefully um, with the Biden administration, there'll be a much warmer reception uh, to the advocacy and human rights work that she's seeking to do. Mm. Where does the UN sit with all of this? I mean, a big part of the narrative of the film is kind of, you know, their their own sort of investigation into what occurred and then Hadijah's testimony, you know, before the council. But what is their power to do anything and kind of where do they sit with the whole affair? Well, this was a, another kind of Icarus analogy if I could make um, is, I had always viewed um, that the World Anti-Doping Agency had authority. And what I came to understand is that their job is basically to just observe <laughs> and report yeah. and be lame duck and that they uh-huh. basically can't do anything. They They're like basically the security like, guard in the neighborhood right. who drives around but it, is kind of feckless. Exactly, yeah. they're the guys that literally go like, okay, these guys are cheating, but um, yeah, we have no power to punish them, mm. you know? And and so that was the amazing thing that I, I, I saw, you know, in 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 Icarus and the story of Rachenkov and this cheating is okay. You have this global regulator of world sport that also has no power to actually really do anything and uh-huh. enact punishments, and that the power is actually within the sporting federations themselves and within the Olympics mm-hmm. and this that and the other, and that WADA is really just the guy out there is like the watchdog pointing a finger, but they're like a mall cop, right? Well, I've found this same thing to be the case of with the UN. So in 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 the film, um, you see Agnes Calamard, who is the who is a special repertoire of the United yeah. Nations. She's an, a character, an investigator. She's French, but she also teaches at Columbia. And so, on the outset, you go, okay, Agnes is the UN. She's actually not. She's a special repertoire to the United Nations, meaning that she has been given permission by the United Nations to launch an investigation, her own independent investigation Mm -hmm. under the umbrella of the United Nations Human Rights Committee. But she doesn't actually work for the UN? She's like a contractor? It's complicated. There's all these special repertoires of the UN of their different committees that are able to launch investigations um, that the UN will either provide a budget for and then ultimately let them speak. So Agnes does an entire investigation of the Khashoggi murder, presents her finding to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Mm -hmm. But the Human Rights Council is kind of like WADA they're just there to observe and report. They have no power, right? And the United States under Trump actually removed themselves from the United Nations, from the UN Human Rights Committee. If you can imagine it, the United States no longer has a seat on the United Nations Human Rights Council. How is that possible? How is that possible? Trump pulled us out of the... uh, <laughs> we're, we're no longer part of the United That's Nations outrageous. Human Rights <laughs> Human Rights Council. Unbelievable. But Saudi Arabia is. Um, <laughs> so so uh-huh. 
So Agnes presents her finding to the Khashoggi murders you see in the film to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. But like WADA, the only thing that they can do is really observe and report. And ultimately the UN, the General Assembly, the Security Council, have to take it up to do something about it. And so the Human Rights Committee doesn't have the power. And, uh, and ultimately, despite the evidence, despite the report, despite the intelligence and the CIA and British intelligence and the transcript and the audio and everything else, the United Nations General Assembly, the Security Council, mm -hmm. has not taken up this investigation mm -hmm. and has not sanctioned Saudi Arabia and has done nothing to take action against Saudi Arabia. And not only that, you saw the G20 just hosted, you know, uh, just weeks ago, a week ago, uh, in, for, in Riyadh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when Hadija is testifying, that's not in front of the General Assembly, that's in front of the Human Rights Council. And you see that's right. the, the Saudi contingent just basically get up and leave in the middle of that. And there's no, penalty for that or any kind of repercussions? It was, um, it was startling. And I think again, so um, we were allowed, which is kind of um, uh, unheard of um, to have a film camera, film cameras uh, within the United Nations, let alone at the, in, in a, an official United Nations, mm -hmm. you know, human rights uh, committee uh, meeting. But uh, we were connected through Agnes and we got in touch with their communications office. And essentially they were like, okay, this is important. We'll, we'll let you come film this. And so we were granted a very special permission to go in there with our cameras to film uh, Agnes's testimony mm -hmm. and Hatija speaking in front of the United Nations, you know, uh, Human Rights Committee asking for justice for Jamal. And as she, goes to speak the two Saudis that were there representing Saudi Arabia on this matter, literally get up and walked out the door. So that did happen. That did happen at that time. Cause when I was watching it, I was like, time. I was wondering, I was like, I wonder if Brian edited this no, to make no, it look no, like no, they got no, up that. in the middle when actually they left at the end. No. Wow. That happened in real time. It was unbelievable, literally watching the Saudis not only deny any responsibility, say that this is a Saudi matter, but then Hatija goes to give her two minutes, I can't remember, three minutes of, of asking for justice. And as she goes to speak, the two Saudi representatives get up and walk out the door. It's insane. Insane. Wow. Was there anybody that you wish you could have interviewed on camera that you just couldn't get to that would have made the story, filled in some gaps? Um, no. And I, I, there was a question. Um, I don't go to Saudi Arabia for the film mm -hmm. and I don't- I noticed that. Have you ever been there? No. Mm -hmm. And I don't interview any uh, Saudi, you know, MBS or, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, whatever. Uh, Did you ever reach out to any of those guys? Like, No. And the reason why is 
Um, much like Icarus, um, I had Gregory Rachenkov. Rachenkov was a whistleblower. His evidence was solid. The diaries, everything that he had brought forward was solid, had been proven forensically, proven through the McLaren report, proven through the New York Times, proven, I mean, you know what I mean? Right. Like the evidence is when you look at what he brought forward, you, there's no denying. It's just, it is what it is. And all the investigation surrounded it proved it. So in this case of the Khashoggi murder, right, what was important to me was to get the evidence from the Turkish, which I got, hear about the investigation and why this is 100% to be believed and is an open and shut case, mm -hmm. which is in the film. To get all of, of that, to basically present this story in a way of, you know, the untold story behind this murder. But to go and let's say interview Mohammed bin Salman, right? You already know what that interview is. Did you do it? No. Mm -hmm. Did you know about it? No. Who did it? I don't know. I mean, they, there was nothing to be gained by doing two things. One, alerting Saudi Arabia that I was making the film. Two, trying to go to Saudi Arabia where you know, you're risking your life. And yeah. three, basically bringing propaganda and rhetoric into something. I didn't want to lend voice to that because that's not true. So it, to me, it was inconsequential to the narrative of the film. Just like, okay, let's say I would have been able to interview Putin and ask him, well, I know what Putin has to say about Gregory mm -hmm. Rachenkov and the allegations. You can watch his, his conferences. He's made multiple statements. He said that Gregory is a member of uh, US intelligence, that he's a spy, that he is a traitor, that he is crazy, that he belongs in a mental asylum. I mean, And you're not gonna catch him in a gotcha moment. Right, right. It's all and well documented. So great, so I go and interview Putin, and what's he gonna tell me? He's gonna tell me, A, I didn't do it, B, these are a bunch of lies, and C, Gregory is insane. I mean, this is, so I already know what, what MBS is gonna say. Mm -hmm. So what is the point of lending further credence to a false narrative when it's really not what the story is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see how everything plays out with MBS. I mean, the arc being that he sort of originally positions himself as somewhat of a reformer and is able to kind of covet global popular opinion. Then we kind of see that perhaps he's not that, but he's got his, um, he's sort of planting his flag with his vision 2030 and and this Davos in the desert thing that ends up becoming kind of like a debacle, right? So on some level, there's a backing up of the global community who is reticent to be, you know, too involved with this guy. And yet there's so much money involved and so much opportunity, those two things being at odds with each other. Like, how does that play out? Does the money always win? Well, um, the year, the, um, the Davos, Davos in the desert is MBS's annual, basically investment form uh, to bring together world investment leaders, CEOs of major, you know, Fortune 500 and global companies to basically come and uh, get investment from Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. or to put investment into Saudi Arabia. And uh, two years ago, right after the Khashoggi murder, many of these 
um, corporations, business leaders, governments, whatever, didn't come yeah, to, out. to Riyadh. They pulled out, but they still sent like their third in charge, fourth in charge, you uh, know, kind of, uh, what's what's that word? Culpable deniability or right. something. Where we you, can't be seen where here, you're like, but we actually right, still right, wanna right. be in The head of Goldman Sachs couldn't be there, but his third in charge was mm-hmm. there, you know? I see. Um, but this past year, um, they all came back. They all came back. So, you know, uh, the money's too big. It's just, it's too much to walk away from. The investment is too big. The cash is too much. And, and Saudi Arabia's future essentially relies on no longer being dependent on oil, right? Right. So uh, in that regard, NBS is a great reformer, meaning, okay, he is a young prince. I think he's 35 now, right? 34. And he realizes that the future of his country is basically not as being the world's oil supplier as Tesla and, you know, electric cars and all this stuff is, is gaining and gaining mm-hmm. and gaining. And, uh, and companies like Neo in China, you know, is the Tesla rival, I mean, their stock is up, I don't know, 10,000% this year, right? So we see this future of energy unfolding. And so arguably over the next 10, 20 years, 30, right? The reliance on oil is gonna become mm-hmm. less and less and less. So the only way that Saudi Arabia can survive is to take all of these trillions of dollars. Yeah, this right? massive liquidity and right? invest it globally. And put it, to use globally, either to bring investment into the kingdom or to invest outside of the kingdom so that they have major stakes in this company or own, you know, whatever it is, hundreds of millions of shares of Uber or, you know, Uh all these different investments that they've made to either return investment to the kingdom because they're not gonna get that from oil anymore or to bring investment into the kingdom because it can, you know, uh, it can grow and also to educate the Saudi people uh, to to basically be computer programmers, to mm-hmm. be to build, to construct, to to basically do what what we've been doing here in the United States and other and other economies, or so, what you see in the UAE, right? And so and and Saudi Arabia and the UAE are best friends. MBZ, in many cases, considered like MBS's like you know right. uh, Godfather, you uh-huh. know, like that MBS takes his direction from MBZ in the Emirates. Um, so clearly MBS is, is right on that. And that's part of vision 2030 is how to basically diversify the kingdom. One of the things he did was he brought Saudi Aramco public, which um, there was a lot of controversy over that because a lot of people didn't think that the state's oil company should be brought public. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they only sold like, like 5% of it. But in so doing overnight, they created, I think it's the second most valuable company in the world. Mm-hmm. Apple, I think has surpassed it now, but it's, you know, Saudi Aramco's worth like, I don't know, 1.7 trillion wow. or something like that. Uh, but that was the ability for, again, for others to invest in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia. Um, you look at these, the oil war that they created with, with Russia, 
this past year, which has led to this, you know, basically the low, lowest oil prices mm -hmm. uh, we've seen in a generation, was again basically how to infuse the kingdom with cash and uh, and basically, you know, expedite the their oil supply um, to basically flood money. You know, it's just these are all ways that um, MBS is trying to. Uh, diversify the kingdom and open it up to investment. And in many ways, there's a lot of positive things about this. And Jamal Khashoggi said that many of the things that MBS was doing was positive. At the same hand, you have Lujan Hatul, the female activist who basically advocated for women to drive in Saudi Arabia on trial right now in Saudi Arabia. And what is she on trial for? She's on trial for basically freedom of speech, even though now women are allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia because it was her idea and it was her basically pushing this, she was arrested and she sat in a, in a, in a prison for the last two years, tortured, and her trial is now going on in Saudi Arabia for, I don't remember what the exact charges are. It's like, you know, crimes against the state that basically wow. she has spoke against the kingdom. Wow. So uh, even though this, that's now legal, today. Yeah. she's she's being tried yeah. for basically instigating what is now law. Right. It wasn't, uh, you know. Uh, so and 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 so this has continued. So uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's complicated. I was thinking off subject for a second, but you talk about this um, cyber. Um, threat and like Pegasus right? and uh, access to governments or these companies, you know, can have into our devices. And what's become clear to me, which I think we're going to see in the next several months is that not only is that technology here, all of us on planet earth are about to have this on our phones. When you think about what's happened with COVID and coronavirus, right? The only way out of this is a vaccine. And arguably the only way out of this is that every single person on the planet can prove that they've been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to be able to prove that we've been vaccinated? You can already see this. There's gonna be an app mm -hmm. on our phones and every single place where we go, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's an airport, whether it's shopping at Costco, whether it's Whole Foods, whether it's walking into the door of a business, right? You're gonna open up this app on your phone. They're gonna scan it. It's gonna show your photo. There's Rich Roll. It's gonna show the date he was vaccinated. It's gonna show when he was vaccinated. It's gonna show that he's COVID negative. And then you're gonna be allowed to enter the premises. Well, who's gonna control this app? Our government. Yeah. This is going to be a national international database. And I guarantee that as this vaccine rolls out within the next five, six months or whenever this is, the only way every single person on the planet in the Western world, at least to begin with, will have to make a decision. Do we want to go to a concert? Do we want to go fly on a plane? Do we want to go to a restaurant? Do we want to go to a store? Do we want to go enter the market? And the choice will be yes or no. Kind of much like, you know, what happened in the in as as Christianity, you know, made its way through the world, which mm -hmm. was, you know, a gun or a knife to your head. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, you live. No, you die. I mean, that was 
That was the spread of, 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 of Christianity throughout the world. And this is going to be essentially our new reality for and, better, for better that, or for worse. Tracking every single place that you go and that gets added to some database. And exactly. you know, to kind of quote the social dilemma, like we are the product and the data mining that can transpire when there's an app that basically logs every single place that you go. Well, how what, long you're there, when you when you enter and when you depart. What is nutty is we're already dealing with this in the, you know, okay, we, you know, okay, Google has a lot of data. Facebook has a lot of data. Our credit cards, right? You can go pull up the credit card statement and you can go, okay, Brian went here, Brian went there, Brian went to this restaurant, Brian went. But we in our minds don't go, oh, our government knows that. Mm-hmm. But government knows that whatever it is, I stayed at a Ramada Inn or I stayed at a Ritz Carlton, right? We go, okay, our credit card company knows that, but our government doesn't know that. Well, starting basically right now, our government and the international governments around the world are not only going to know everything about us, they're going to know every place we walk into. They're gonna know whether or not I shop at Gucci or whether I shop at Costco. They're gonna know if I ate dinner at Nobu or if I went to McDonald's. They're going to know everything about us, where we go, where we've been, where we travel, what airline we board, because that is the only way when you actually think about what's gonna happen with this COVID vaccine, that it can actually be, right, Mm -hmm. successful. Meaning, okay, you're going to have to show when you enter a place that you've been vaccinated. And if you don't show you've been vaccinated, you're not gonna be able to go to the store. You're not gonna be able to get on the plane. You're not gonna be able to go anywhere. There's gotta be an analog solution to that somehow though. I doubt it. I mean, I think the analog solution is, oh, you don't have a smartphone. So they're gonna give you like a driver's license. That'll have like a chip in it or something. But the driver's license is gonna be the The same same thing thing. because they're gonna scan Scan the driver's license and it's gonna go into the same database. Right. So I, I think, you know, this, this, We've been dealing with this for years, but you know, and I'm not a um, um, a conspiracy theorist, and so I don't view this as a conspiracy theory at all, and I don't view this as a you know, oh wow, but that Big Brother moment is truly upon us. I mean, it it is here, and it's not even the now. I mean, this is the moment is upon us. Because when you look at what's going to happen over as the way that this vaccine rolls out and you just use common sense, you go, well, of course, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna be able to enter a restaurant unless you show you've been yeah, vaccinated. you're gonna have to establish it. And, it. and this is a national, international protocol, meaning, okay, you arrive in Switzerland. Where's Crossing your app? Borders. Boom. Yeah. You, and this is gonna be global. You go to a restaurant in Zurich, you're gonna scan the app. You go to a restaurant in Italy, you're gonna go anywhere in the world, right? You're gonna have to show <laughs> oh, that you've been vaccinated and so now Brian and Rich Roll and every person on the planet, unless you're living in a, in a tribal yeah. village in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Everything we do, everywhere we go, everything we shop. And you think about this just in the case of like, you know, anything, what this is, mm-hmm. or, you know. The counter argument is gonna be similar to the arguments that, that you heard uh, 
with Snowden in that, oh, it's just metadata. We don't actually know anything about, you know, what you did specifically. We're just getting ones and zeros about whether people entering and leaving are healthy, right? I mean, I'm sure that'll be the response. Of course, unless they want to know. Unless mm-hmm. unless they go, um, we hey, think- Hey, we're at the FBI, we, like right. we need to we th- we pull think, up Brian. Right. We think John Smith might be <laughs> yeah. whatever, right. running a fraudulent business. Yeah. And then boom, at the end, so instead of, instead of subpoenaing mm-hmm. uh, the credit cards, subpoenaing the bank, subpoenas, and, you know, doing that whole process so of an so investigation. running for office. Right. Let's pull him up. Those we don't like boom, this guy. And you go, oh, whoa, this guy's uh, staying at this place. He's on this airline. He's there. He's right. there. Da, 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 da. Clearly. But when, he, but he, when he gets behind a microphone, he says this instead. Yeah. We can use that. I think. It's frightening, man. I think what is, what is upon How do we? Us, what no, are we going to do? It's minority report. It's it's all this stuff that we've seen for years and years in in movies and science fiction and Blade Runner and and 1984, mm-hmm. which was you know uh, we latched onto 1984 as the theme of Icarus because not only was right. that Gregory's famous favorite book, but it's that whole idea that Big Brother's watching that you're never going to beat the system, that ultimately the system has the strength and the government is, 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 is who is in charge. And, you know, you see this in the dissident where not only in the murder of Jamal, but, but uh, the aftermath of this, that there's no punishment and that uh, my film doesn't get distributed by mm. a major streamer and the government's not, right? It's all these themes, this Orwellian theme of 1984, and now we're seeing it in our lives. And I think, um, and I think COVID, for better or for worse, because we all want to get back to our lives, is we're all going to line up and sign up for it. Is that Big Brother moment? It is upon us. Mm. It is that true, true, true Big Brother moment. It's mm. a very dystopian note to end this whole thing on. <laughs> I, but one I, thing we could do is, you know, all, your movies always have a call to action too. Like, how can somebody who's um, who sees the film or listens to this and, and feels inspired to get involved? Like, where do you direct that attention? Well, um, we, uh, you know, the Human Rights Foundation. Um, every everything uh, the film was basically made uh, through charitable donations. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the marketing and advertising again is being supported through charitable donations. Um, and uh, that's all coming from a human rights foundation. So, you know, I think there's a, a couple ways to get involved. Um, one doesn't involve, you know, any money. It's, it's, it's purely what we saw with the Arab Spring or what we see in great movements or Black Lives Matter or Me Too um, or any one of these movements um, that take action is they start at the, you know, at an individual level and it grows and grows and grows and voices are heard. And I think that in the case of this, there's a way to have your voice heard, which is, you know, you, you send a letter to your congressman, to your senator, you go on there, their websites and you send an email and you say, hey, you know, I want you to take take action against mm-hmm. human rights abuses 
in Saudi Arabia. I, there should be punishment for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, there should be accountability. Um, I don't condone you, Emmanuel Macron, or you, Justin Trudeau, or you name the person, right? Doing business with this country so long as they are beheading 800, 900 people a year for doing nothing more than tweeting. Um, so long as women are sitting in jails because they advocated for the right to drive uh, or people are being imprisoned simply for voicing an opinion, mm -hmm. right? So there's that, and that is a call to action. The other, of course, is looking at the Human Rights Foundation and um, either getting involved with them in a volunteer level or getting involved in a donation base uh, because the work that they're doing through the Oslo Freedom Forum, and if you do a deep dive, I mean, it's, you know, countries all over the world that they are supporting dissidents. They are supporting uh, people who have um, otherwise been forced to leave their country essentially for wanting free speech or have, you know, or are, or are family members of people who have been murdered in these countries mm -hmm. uh, for fighting for freedom of press or freedom of speech or human rights. Um, so that's the other place to get involved. And then, you know, um, I think as, as Biden takes office, um, I believe that there's a potential real kind of reimagining of the U.S.-Saudi relations. And there's, the, you know, uh, yet another way to get involved in, in that sort of advocacy. Um, and uh, I mean, I think, I think those are, are the ways to, uh, to get involved and to make an impact. And hopefully, uh, most powerfully is to see the film um, and to tell your friends about this film because um, that leads to change. What, what happened with Icarus was the film being on Netflix and being seen had a 10,000 times bigger impact than the New York Times, than CNN, than all of the stories and everything before it because all of a sudden there was a global audience that could see this film and that pressure led the IOC, the Olympic Committee, to take action. Mm -hmm. And that has still survived to this day. And I believe that this film, if seen by enough people, can have the same effect uh, on foreign policies all over the world regarding Saudi Arabia. And it's not so much about punishment for MBS. It's not, oh, does Mohammed bin Salman wind up in a jail? That's unrealistic. But can this film lead to pressuring change that tens of thousands of people that are falsely jailed in Saudi prisons are released and are allowed to have freedom of speech or allowed to voice their opinions on Twitter without fear of retribution? I believe that that is possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if enlightenment comes and sometimes, you know, a leader can become enlightened because he realizes that um, by by oppressing opinions doesn't doesn't really lead to any good, that you can actually be a kind leader, that you can be a good leader, that uh, even if you're a king, it doesn't mean that you need to be a bad king, you can be a good king. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of my hope with right. this film. And that was kind of Khashoggi's whole thing early on, right? That was his whole thing. Yeah. I mean, he, he, his last breath and everything was, you know, like, I mean, hey, it, I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not calling for, um, you know, the French Revolution here. He wasn't, you know, this, this, he was not advocating, you know, to go round up the royals and behead right. them. Yeah. He was advocating the smallest that, of changes. That, that simply that the royal family opened up the system to more of a parliamentary system. But he believed, and he said this over and over again, that one man's opinion, the leadership of one person and only one person under any situation cannot be good. That the best leadership has to be, yes, there's a leader like a president, but that there are other voices that are heard. And what he saw and saw in the kingdom is that there was no other voice other than MBS. And, and what's outlined in the film also is the roundup at the Ritz-Carlton mm -hmm. where he arrests all the other princes and businesses leaders and shakes them down for money. What he's done since taking power as a crown prince is basically, you know, lock up anybody who can oppose him, that he goes, hey, this is, this is not the best way to lead. The best way to lead is, is through kindness, mm -hmm. through allowing other opinions and listening to other opinions. And ultimately not in service to, to you know, the global, the sort of prosperity that he seeks and the approval of the global community upon which he's reliant upon if he wants to actualize his vision 2030. What's really strange is, um, you know, the trip that he took to the United States, um, which was just months before the Khashoggi murder, I think, uh, and, and I can be misquoted here. I think it was like March of 2018 um, and Khashoggi was murdered in October, 2018. Um, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it was March thereabouts. He comes to the United States, Mohammed bin Salman, and he had hired all these companies like McKinsey mm -hmm. and all these huge consulting firms that he was paying hundreds of millions of dollars to basically promote him in Washington and among business leaders as the great reformer, as this young prince, this great, you know, you know, this guy is 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 loved and he is so cool and he's hip. And, and even when he was in the United States, he was wearing a suit, right? Mm -hmm. and, he, and he wasn't wearing a headdress and he wasn't wearing uh, the traditional Saudi garments, right? So it's like, okay, this is a enlightened uh, Islam. This is an enlightened leader. He's Western, right? And that's how he presented himself. And he took these meetings with everybody from Obama, to uh, to Jeff Bezos, to Bill Gates, to you know, on and on and mm -hmm. on and on. Elon Musk, you know, and he, and they set up, and he went to Washington, and then he came to Los Angeles and took over the entire Four Seasons on Doheny, shut the entire hotel down. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, what an ego! I mean, like, yeah. really, yeah. you needed to take the entire <laughs> hotel, all whatever it is, three hundred rooms, like. Did he do the thing where they fly in, you know, on their own jet and then have all their cars like in the car? Oh, yeah. Bay? I mean, when you've seen so this guy I mean, out with the Rolls Royces and everything. Well, I mean, he's literally flying on yeah. like his own Airbus. Right. And not yeah. only is he on like his own Airbus or whatever it is, he's then got like fighter jets following right. him on the scene. Airbus. A, you see that in the movie. Right. Yeah. Refueling him as he flies. And then he lands and there's, 
and you know whatever it is there's the airbus and then he's like got a 747 i mean it's it's the most uh-huh. it is the most crazy over the top insane you know you think our president or whatever the secret service or something travels you know air force 1 forget about it i mean this is uh-huh. this is a thousand times that i mean this is mm. you know this is insane i mean but i remember when he came to the us and right. it was the, you know it was this there was that that right. sense that you know this great reformer is here and things are going to change but where i was going with this is that consultants and security experts that i said is so apparently wherever he went. Um, So he locked himself up in this Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, and then he did the same thing in Silicon Valley. And he would not go meet with anybody. So all the meetings were hosted on his turf, right? Mm -hmm. And there were all these like silver briefcases that were being pulled in. And and one of the the guys in the film, um, the head, you know, cybersecurity guy who was running uh, White House cybersecurity and FBI cybersecurity is that there is a lot of beliefs and apparently, you know, investigations that they believe that they were essentially using these meetings. He was getting the numbers, phone numbers of people like Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. right? And then he could then deploy Pegasus on deploy any phone. Deploy Pegasus that he, wow. because because they, they they were hacking Bezos months before the Khashoggi murder. So you wonder who else did he get? Wow. Who else did he get? So these these meetings while they're for business, he was also using it uh, to basically hack uh, the phones of leaders all over right, the world. Like, hey, let's stay in touch on WhatsApp. Right, right, What's right. Hey, whatever. Hey, hey Elon Obama. Musk. Nice to meet you, Elon Musk. What's your number? Hey, what's your number? Right, you know? Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, you would think like after after the Bezos thing, all those guys are like, you know, looking at their phone, getting somebody on their phone to make sure they're locked down. I don't, I don't, I certainly don't know that for a fact, but it would be a, uh, it'd be a wise thing to do, I would say. Well, if all you wanted to do is make documentaries about subjects like this, you, you would be able to do that for the rest of your life, I think. You know, even the idea of doing one around the vaccine or around, you know, Saudi investment in, you know, United States entertainment companies, like there's no end to, these threads that you can pull on the themes that, you know, obviously speak to you. You know, uh, uh, I, I, I think that what will be interesting for me is this, this film has been really two full years of my life. It, uh, uh, it was um, a year and a half to make it. Uh, I'm still working on this every single day, you know, two, two years into it. Um, and so these stories really take over my life. I yeah. mean, you know, because Icarus was such a personal story and uh, uh, and I'm still very, you know, involved. I actually just passed in Congress uh, and the Senate, the RADA, the Rachenkov Act, Anti-Doping mm. Act, just passed last week through the Senate. Wow. It's waiting for Trump's signature, which That's is- That's gotta be incredibly gratifying. Which is amazing. So yeah. Rachenkov actually has, a law passed in him that the United States has passed to basically try to manage global 
doping in sports because WADA is so ineffective mm -hmm. and basically criminalizing this in the US courts. And there's all these logistics around it, but basically it, it makes it that if an athlete comes to the United States and if there's, you know, there's mm. Ruchenkov Anti-Doping Act just, just passed. Uh, and, uh, and Russia is still banned from global sport. And so these, it's, it's lived on. And so I think for me, um, it's really looking at stories that I think that I can tell that can possibly have a, a global impact that can have, um, a resonance behind it and live on. I'm hoping that the dissident and the story behind the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, uh, will be that. And certainly in uh, other subject matter that, that I'm looking at. And I think the, the hard thing and the question kind of becomes, what is that future in having uh, material like this distributed? Mm -hmm. uh, because it is becoming more and more difficult. And, you know, just for example, and we talked about this, but had the Human Rights Foundation not come in and supported this film, it wouldn't have gotten made. Yeah. Um, I had went to all sorts of, um, people before, you know, Thor and I meet up and they were all scared to finance it. Right. And, uh, so, you know, when you have this level of fear going on that is perpetuating societies, the question is, is what is that next story? And will that next story be able to be just told honestly? Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads into the whole, whether it's, you know, the false narratives going out, going on around, you know, election fraud, uh, or it's the false narratives that get put out of Russia or Saudi or anything else. Um, I think it's becoming harder and harder uh, to just have something just go, the truth is the truth is the truth. And we used to go, you'd pick up a New York Times and go, Okay, it's the New York Times. It's the truth. Right. And now you even have 50% of the country going, the New York Times is not the truth. The New York Times is fake news. And you go, okay, how does this come to a place where this stops, where the news becomes the news again? Truth becomes truth again. Mm -hmm. Facts become facts again. And I don't have those answers. Yeah, I mean, but finding it's... our way back to that is is very difficult. And the irony being, of course, that we've never had greater immediate access to more information, and yet our level of trust in that information has never been lower. Meanwhile, there's this squelching of expression that is making it more difficult for films that are endeavoring to tell the truth or shed light on a difficult truth like your own film. And how do we see our way forward from that? Like it does feel like somebody should put together a streaming platform that is just all about stories like this that are, that are difficult. And it's gotta be about the truth and the message and not about how it's gonna fare in the global marketplace or you know, how are we gonna grow this streaming enterprise across the world and garner the investment from these problematic nation states. It, that needs to be done. I mean, you're, um, there are philanthropists in the world, uh, uh, Lauren Powell Jobs uh, uh, right. funded uh, Concordia, Davis Guggenheim's company about a year ago. 
Uh, I mean, and they participant still, still exists, don't they? Are they? Yeah, but they're they not doing. Very, they're basically no longer doing political content, and 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 the problem with participant is that these models are financially based. So um, participant is finding that you know there's not whatever profit to be had in mm-hmm. in these models. So I've been told that they're shying away from a lot of this. Um, so I think that. You know, what's gotta happen is, or or the perfect world is you have a philanthropist, you know, uh, whether it's someone like a, a, a Lauren Jobs or it's a Jack Dorsey who, mm-hmm. you know, is, who is, you know, uh, I, I feel like how he's handled Twitter and, you know, has been pretty cool. And yeah. uh, he's certainly uh, pretty enlightened. Um, He's a perfect candidate. I think yeah. he would be super interested in this yeah. idea. All right, a Dorsey or maybe an Elon Musk or, you know, even a Bill Gates uh, um, that goes, okay, you know what? What am I gonna do with all this wealth? I, you, what are you gonna do with it? You can't, once you're worth more than whatever it is, a couple hundred million dollars, what are you gonna do with it? Mm-hmm. If you got $10 billion, you're making a billion, $2 billion a year just on the interest on your billions. I mean, you can't spend it. I mean, even like Bill Gates where you say, okay, his mandate is I'm giving away all my wealth. It doesn't matter how much he gives away. Every year, his wealth increases and increases. You're going like, wait, but I thought you were giving it all away. But at the same time, Microsoft just keeps doubling and doubling Mm -hmm. and doubling and doubling. The guy can't give away enough money fast enough. Yeah. I mean, so, so ultimately I think you look at one of these people or or persons that go, you know, um, just just as much as I want to give away my wealth to help, um, you know, fight poverty in Africa, or just as much as I want to give away my my wealth uh, uh, to fight, you know, research of vaccines or um, or irrigation systems or this that and the other. Well, I want to give away my wealth to see to it um, that there is a global platform that is well-funded, mm-hmm. well-financed, well-endowed, that you've got that app, just like Netflix, that you can go to and that there isn't so much of a financial model behind it mm-hmm. as there is a philanthropic model behind it to see to it that stories like this get told. Um, to and, me, and to you know, to have have consumers subscribe to it for a couple bucks makes it you know economically viable. Right, exactly. I mean, if it, if it's something where you know the guy's got to decide, okay, do I pay my fourteen ninety nine for Netflix or do I pay my fourteen ninety nine for whatever it is, Truth, mm-hmm. you know, well that becomes difficult. But if it's a but if it's a you know if it's a subscription that is whatever. Two ninety nine, mm-hmm. and you know that you're going to go on there, and you're going to have all sorts of content that otherwise big media companies that are only looking at shareholder accountability, growth in the region, subscriber numbers, risk assessment of all these other things that make it impossible to do that kind of content. And if you have something like that, um, that could be very very powerful. All right, so all you billionaires out there listening. Give Brian a call. Exactly. <laughs> right? I've thought about this many times and I do mm. think that that is, I do think that this is 
uh, or will be the future um, of stories like The Dissident mm. because I don't see these global media companies changing. I mean, even if you look at a company like, let's say, HBO a few years ago, well, now it's, you know, Warner Media and AT&T. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's all interconnected. Yeah, it's a giant conglomerate. Right. So the so as these conglomerates take hold and, you know, the Amazons of the world, um, everything becomes a risk, mm-hmm. uh, a risk assessment. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because the streaming, the streaming universe has you do have to credit it with providing the opportunity for a lot of independent stories to be told and shared and celebrated in a way that would not have been possible in the theatrical window model. So it has done, you know, like not as many people would have seen Icarus if it were not for Netflix, of course. So it's and like, you know, it's like, it's unbelievable the power of these platforms to help, you know, smaller filmmakers and stories that aren't gonna get greenlit, you know, to be in the multiplex. And yet at the same time, there is this risk analysis that is having this squelching impact. Well, what you have is like in the case of Netflix, the the Netflix that did Icarus three years ago is not the Netflix of today. Mm. It's a different company. You know, that was a company that had a hundred million subscribers versus 200 million subscribers. That was a company that was, um, very hungry at the at the time to uh, show that it could be an awards contender, show that it could you know uh, uh, evolve beyond um, you know House of Cards and uh, and it was it was a different company um, three years ago mm-hmm. uh, and and what happens for better or for worse because look I, I I love Netflix I mean the majority of I mean. Queen's Gambit that I just finished watching right. is it's extraordinary. Fantastic. It's extraordinary. And there's so much extraordinary content on there. And I am sure that I will continue to to do content, make content uh, and have content on Netflix. They're awesome and they're amazing at what they do. I love them. But on the other hand, because of how big they are and the growth that they've had and where they're at in the world right now, there is a whole other risk model that comes into it. And in many ways, you can't, you can't fault them either because if you're running that company, the burden that comes uh, on top of that to grow, uh, to have shareholder value, and to also not put your company at risk also becomes very, very yeah. hard. And I don't, so I don't have that answer to it because at the same time, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not angry at them. I love them. I think they're amazing and I love what they're doing and I love the content and, and, and the form that they've provided for so many people and what they did for Icarus was outstanding and astounding. Um, at the same time, there's a conundrum where something gets so big that risk assessment will always get in the way mm-hmm. or become you know, a variable as to whether you do something or not. Yeah, well, we gotta end this thing. Um, everybody, please go see this movie. It was, uh, 
very impactful for me. I've seen it twice. Um, I was moved by it, uh, it made me think. Uh, it's a heavy film, but it also, like we said at the outset, you know, definitely a thriller. You're on this roller coaster ride as this story unfolds, and you did this with a master stroke. Like it's it's extraordinary. So congratulations on the movie. It opens December 25th in limited theaters, and then January 8th on your VOD platform. Of exactly, choice. it'll be yeah. available on demand uh, to rent uh, on basically all platforms beginning right. January 8th. Yeah, check it out. And in theaters, uh, December 25th, if you have a theater open near you. Right. Um, you can learn more about it at thedissident.com and you can find Brian pretty easily on the internet at Brian Fogel, right? Yeah, uh, at Brian Fogel on Twitter or Instagram, I keep private, but yeah, I, if you add me, I'll <laughs> make sure you're not a Saudi troll. And, <laughs> and, uh, I don't and know, then, they, and you, then you might not know, you know what I mean? <laughs> you should know better than anyone. It's funny, yeah, I mean, I keep my accounts private because uh, I very rarely, I, I don't, don't have a lot you. of time for it, but then I'll click and and I go, wait, you're, this looks like a honeypot or something. You know, right. I click and it's like some- You must be, everything that comes you know, in, you must think, do I really wanna I'm click like, on I'm this? Like, I'm like, um, this doesn't look like a real person, right. <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> you know, or something clicks in, and I'm like, uh, yeah, this something's right. up here. <sighs> what are we gonna do? Go ride our bikes. Yeah, let's go ride bikes. That's How about what we're that? Do. All right, go ski, go ride bikes. Yeah, cool. Get some that sunshine. we will do for sure. Uh, thank you, man. That was super powerful. Um, so much respect for putting yourself out there in a really powerful way to forge positive change. It's it's a uh, it's an example for me and, and how I think about how I interface with the world. And I know for so many people out there. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks, Rich. It's right good on. to be back on and talking to you again. Yeah, cool. You're amazing. And uh, any of you haven't seen Rich's new book, you have to get it. It's incredible. It's on my coffee table. Yeah, because you're in it. I am in <laughs> it. He's in it, yeah. <laughs> cool, uh, thank you. Peace. Bye. Peace. Sobering, right? Courageous that, Brian, super courageous. Please make a point of checking out The Dissident streaming VOD on most platforms starting January 8th. Give Brian a high five on the socials at Brian Fogel on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We have links up there to everything that we discussed and explored today. If you'd like to support our work here on the show, the single most impactful thing you can do is to just subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It will only take you a very brief moment and it does help us out a lot. Uh, I love it when you share the show or your favorite episodes with friends on social media platforms. And how about analog vibe too? And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com slash donate. Today's show was produced and engineered as always by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the show was created by Blake Curtis. Graphics by Jessica Miranda, portraits by Ali Rogers. Sponsor relationships are managed by DK David Kahn and theme music by Tyler, Trapper, and Hari, my boys. Appreciate the love you guys. See you back here in a couple of days with a beautiful, beautiful conversation with my new best friend, Queer Eyes Karamo Brown. So good. Until then, speak your truth. Peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.